All right. What's up with the Mystifier crew? We out here. It's a beautiful Wednesday evening, end of November. Ah, good to see some regulars here. We have so much to talk about tonight and was having a bit of tech trouble before we got started. I want to make sure everyone in the chat thinks that I sound good enough because <laughs> I don't know what was up. Don't want to say it, but I might need some tech upgrades. This stuff's been riding for two or three plus years. Might need to, might be about time. I don't know how long these things are meant to last. It's a good mic, but yeah, I don't know. It was weird. Maybe I just need to restart my computer. I had a instinct that I should, but enough about that. I'm going to assume that it's all good. Nobody's saying anything in the chat yet, but welcome everybody. Oh, great audio says Rachel. Okay. I'll take that. Gabe, we were just saying before we kicked off here, how this episode, the fifth episode really got our gears turning. <laughs> I don't think that can be ex exaggerated enough. It, it's so full. I, it's the most full one yet. I think. Yes, sir. Yes. That is a perfect, uh, perfect metaphor word choice. Well said. Uh, you know what I think it is. I think, uh, for me, uh, I'm picking up on the thread of how the both deck and the wizard of Oz have a color scheme through the archetypes that they share. And the Loki series is that color spectrum of the Wizard of Oz and the Thoth deck in those uh, those colors. They're starting to activate it in such a way that the archetypes are just coming through, punching me, really just punching. They're just punching. And so a lot of the pieces are falling into place now. And this is where I start to get really enthusiastic. And you kind of get that... Um, usual suspects effect where you get to the end and you're like, Oh, I got to go back and rethink what I thought I knew about this and that. And now, yeah. So by the end of this episode, we're going to have a lot of characters kind of locked into their, uh, for me, for the tarot cards, I got a lot of tarot card locks that are just like, now, hmm. now we see what's going on and they don't, and they're not stagnant because they'll, they'll reiterate later in this, in the series in other fun ways. So I agree with all that. One thing I noticed when you're speaking just now is at first there was a lot of like crackle and funky stuff, but then it smoothed out. If I had to guess, it seemed like it was based on your proximity. So when you're a little further away, it seemed like it was more all good. So we'll test that. But uh, yeah, I think we're all right. I feel like I'm going to have to talk fast tonight. So I'm going to jump into the slides and blaze through stuff because there's nine i got 90 90 slides <laughs> let's just make it 93 <laughs> <laughs> okay 93 and my my take on the tarot part of this is i have been since the second episode or something picking just one card to really correlate to an episode for the episode as a whole. But this one I, I had, I had a winner, but then there was a second one that was kind of there too. So uh, I talked about both of them. Didn't really go doling out cards to individual characters, but more just for the overall theme of the show. And a big shout out to PK. He sent me this Hebrew Gematria PDF and that thing's been gold. The, uh, 
once you pick a card, you can prove it to yourself by looking at the Hebrew words that associate with that numerical value for the letter that's on the tarot card. And this episode was no exception. I knew that I had picked the right one whenever it proved itself over and over again in the episode. So we'll talk about all that. Let me get the screen share going. I'm glad we're doing this, man. Feels like it's been a while. I think two weeks and this has been on my mind the whole time. So episode five, Journey into Mystery. It kicked off or ended last time, left off with Loki and Sylvie meeting the timekeepers. They're robots. One of them gets decapitated. It's an uncanny valley tin man. And Loki gets pruned, seemingly dead. Then he wakes up in front of uh, some other new Lokis. So that's where we left off. Journey into Mystery is a reference to the name of the episode is a reference to Loki's first appearance in the comics. Kind of. There's a book called Journey into Mystery, and it was really his second appearance. He was before that in a book called Venus, which was about the goddess of love Venus as like a superhero figure. Totally lost to modern comics. Not really a character that stuck around, but Loki was a villain. He was the god of evil in that comic. Uh, then later they reintroduced him in this more like anthology book in the Silver Age called Journey to Mystery. And he's been sort of a staple for Marvel ever since. The funny thing, though, is before it was Marvel, it was Timely Comics. And that's where the Victor Timely character gets his name. That's a season two thing. We'll talk about that later. But the very first, you know how it is, the very first opening shot you got to talk about. And did you catch this? <laughs> no. What is that? Okay. So the very first thing you see when the episode begins is one of the TVA's screens where they're monitoring the different timelines and the branches that they need to deal with. And on the screen, it's flashing Oak Island, Nova Scotia, 1901. You know about Oak Island? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> well, okay. Oak Island is, I, I don't claim to know a lot about it, but I'm aware that in Nova Scotia, this place, Oak Island, there's a supposedly a treasure cache of artifacts from you know, a, what you'd call like out of place artifacts. <laughs> Ooparts, oopas. The, this is an image of a boatswain whistle that was found in 1901. I put it there is because this artifact was found in 1901 specifically, but suffice to say the relics that are there on Oak Island are definitely not part of the sacred timeline of controlled historical narrative. Definitely not. I'll go through some of the stuff that's from Oak Island. First of all, there's petroglyphs that are carved on cave walls and boulders in Nova Scotia by the Mi'kmaq people, which depict now where's old world Mi'kmaq we're talking about as people. They they depict what is believed to be Roman soldiers marching with swords and Roman ships. Also, the Mi'kmaq people carry a supposedly I don't know about DNA. I don't know how real it is, but supposedly they carry a rare DNA marker, which can be traced to the Mediterranean. Uh, 50 words in the Mi'kmaq language that are nautical terms used by mariners from Roman times. You know, there's so when you get over about five to eight words that are the same between two languages, the odds are astronomical in favor that they are related, that they come from a common source. 
There's an invasive species of plant, Berberis vulgaris, growing on Oak Island, which was used by Romans to season their food and prevent scurvy on their sea voyages. That's pretty big evidence. There's a Roman. This is this whistle, though. I, I called it a boatswain's whistle, but it's a Roman legionnaire whistle. Uh, that's pretty damning evidence. <laughs> and there's also a uh, Roman sword. Obviously, that's quite recognizable. They found a metal boss from the center of a Roman shield in the mid 1800s and gold coins that are Carthage coins. I assume that means Phoenician. So when they say this stuff is Roman, I'm thinking Phoenician or the Holy Sailors, right? But boom, right out the gate, we're seeing, we're getting a big finger pointed at the, uh, (laughs) the sacred timeline can be controlling the sacred timeline. This stuff doesn't fit into the mainstream narrative, but there's a lot there. Yes. There. uh, So the opening theme is going to be treasure hunt. You know, that's basically what this is saying is prepare yourselves for a treasure hunt, uh, because that really is. I mean, the the amount of Easter eggs and symbolic richness that we're about to get into is uh, very apropos that they would hint to us that, yeah, we should get our symbolic metal detectors fired up. Uh, And I've got to I got to mention, you know, 1901, we got the nine and the 11 arranged in there. Um, I. uh, The. 19th card is the sun card. Uh, that's part of the theme. That's part of the theme for me. Uh, the sun card is going to come in here where uh, Perseus, right between a uh, sun card and uh, uh, the Aeon card, right between uh, Aries and Taurus, is the differential between Perseus and Auriga. Um, that dividing line is what divides uh, Aries from Taurus. Uh, uh, I think of Perseus's sword is literally what uh, deviates or differentiates, excuse me, uh, Aries from Taurus. Um, So that comes to mind with the 1901 uh, and the sword here with, uh, because Perseus is waving the sword because one of the characters has a sword here. There's going to be a sword handoff in the in the film. So this Roman sword already has correspondence to this uh to this this child who's going to be waving a new sword there's a new sword coming into the into the plot on this episode so let's let's tie those together just now yeah everyone remember that because we're gonna we'll get back to it in about four hours (laughs) but you said you know metal detectors ready we're looking for treasure i do think we're for sure the number one card that this episode correlates to is the fortune card the fortune card is the wheel, wheel of fortune in the right way. I think so. To recap, I'm going for a Crowleyan analysis in this. It's Hollywood. I think that fits. It makes sense. This episode pretty much seals the deal and justifies the fact that we've been looking into a Crowley lens for the previous episodes. You see the wheel here in like as the camera pans down away from that screen, the very next thing you see is this wheel. So obviously important. It's the first thing you're getting shown the fortune card in the Crowley deck. There's obviously a lot you could say about it and we'll return to it as we go. But the figures, they symbolize the three forms of energy, which govern the movement of phenomena. So like uh mercury, salt, sulfur, uh, I'll be honest. I'm not, <laughs> I don't entirely remember which one's which. I think the top figure here, 
the Sphinx with the sword, there's that sword again, is, uh, I think that represents Sylvie in this episode and probably is the, I don't know which one's more. Let me, let me check. I have the reference open, which ones, which. Yeah, it does. It gets kind of, kind of convoluted. Uh, that's a good question though. Maybe by the end we will suss out who's who, but you're totally right. It is the, you know, it's a herbanubis. Um, oh yeah. Typhon is the salt. Typhon's the one on the bottom. And okay. so that would mean herbanubis is probably the mercury. And then that would make sulfur for the sphinx. Yeah. Pretty sure that's it. And then the gunas are a part of this as well. This card has to do with the the gunas revolve. And the gunas are qualities of existence. That's maybe a little beyond this conversation. It's not exactly got an English word to go with it, but oops. But I think Typhon is the Eliath monster in this episode. I think yeah. Sylvie is the sordid sphinx. And I think Hermanubis is the R Loki. And I think that the uh, the old Loki is also the Hermanubis character. <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, one more, well, quite a few more things, but uh, uh, this is the God machine, Deus Ex Mechina. In the word Deus Ex Mechina is hiding the word sex. You know, Deus Ex Mechina. Pandora was a sex bot. She was a, a sex robot uh, made by Hephaestus. Um but also this uh, this mechanistic aspect, you know, this is um, um, this is going to be uh, the the unresolvable knot. The plot is going to tie itself into something that cannot be resolved, and then there's going to be something descending from on high to give resolution uh, that doesn't really make sense. But it, because of the spectacle of it all, everybody's supposed to just be like, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, you of, just define the whole show. Yeah, it's, it's like, a big spectacle that doesn't really make sense, but you're kind of satisfied anyway. Yeah, <laughs> the sleight of hand for sure. Uh, and then I want to mention again about the Oak Island. You know, they have to descend down some sort of basket or bucket or elevator of some sort to get into the treasure hunt. They call it the money pit. The money pit. Thank you. Well, yes. So sure enough, here in this opening scene, it focuses in as we rotate to an elevator. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very important <laughs> that as I'm talking about this card to realize that what the camera is doing is it rotates in a full 360 wheel. Yeah. So shows you the wheel and then it does a full 360. This is the turning of fate, turning of fortunes, turning of the wheel reincarnation life and death so much about wheel of fortune we could say the letter on here though is what i think was my favorite thing to bring into the analysis so it's cough is the letter that's like a c k q x or c h it means basically the palm of the hand or like to grip or to grasp something so we're going to be looking at words in hebrew gematria biblical hebrew gematria that have the the value of 20 in the powers of notation. But I also want to bring into the idea the Phoenician cough, which is not exactly the same letter, but becomes the Hebrew cough. <laughs> uh, it's complicated, we'll just say, but 
th this Phoenician version of the same phonetic sound had a meaning of like the eye of the needle and it ends up getting turned into more of like the letter phi or phi in Greek later, but in terms of the shape, but it reminds me a lot of what we've covered in previous episodes with like the teth and the, the cross and all that. But more, most important thing about it is this idea of the eye of the needle or the monkey, which we will cover off as we go and we see it. So we'll be looking for that. Uh, and yes, as the ominous music is playing, we see we see the camera doing this upside down thing because the whole TVA has been turned upside down at this point. The timekeepers are dead. It's chaos and pandemonium. Uh, so there's that. I'll keep going. I want to go fast. Keep reminding myself, go fast. <laughs> Don't dilly dally. Here's the. As the, the, the camera continues its rotation, you see that slogan of the TVA for all time, always that they're always saying to each other. It's like their cult mantra. And I thought, let's just add that up. So, and I'm doing septenary gematria. I like to just sort of stick to one. I think that that's the one that fits the English language best. Not saying other ciphers are irrelevant, but that's, I just pick one and use only that one. That way I'm not just picking and choosing to try to get the result I want. <laughs> You know what I mean? Consistency. Yeah. But this equals this phrase equals 52. So that makes me think of the 52 weeks of the year, 52 cards in the deck. You know, it's the the cycle of the wheel or the, the wheel of fortune is the rotation of the the full year, the rotation of a day of a year of larger cycles. So I think that's pretty relevant. And yeah, that's a bingo. That's a bingo. <laughs> Then we go into the, it goes to the elevator and you see where we left the timekeepers. Oh, Dylan's saying Kof and Kof are different letters, both exist in Hebrew. Yeah, but phonetically it's the same sound and can transliterate to the same thing. So I'm just bringing it into the weave. It doesn't have the same numerical value though, but. Yeah, I, I definitely see the one implying the other. It's like, you can't talk about the one and not address the other. They like, it, uh, which is which just runs on and on. You end up chasing your tail around that one. I've done that before. <laughs> so we see here the, the decapitated robot timekeeper. You know what I'm getting at here, right? Oh yeah. John the Baptist status. <laughs> head of John the Baptist. You know, no one picked up this head and it's just still hanging out. The Templars allegedly kept the head of John the Baptist to invoke fertility magic for the agriculture of their region, which is also, in my opinion, part of a cyclical idea, not to mention that Templars have temp like temporal time in the word. So when I, anytime I see severed heads, I'm always thinking severed head of John the Baptist for the record. I'm yeah. <laughs> going to always say that. I'm always going to think that, but I do think it fits. And there's the, rune that you see behind the timekeepers this is something we talked about last episode where we discussed that the symbols behind the timekeepers looked like inguas and kanaz put together but later talking with jen and in the chat i thought you know this could also be the othala rune and i like that read that is an interesting <laughs> read yeah othala is it represents heritage and inheritance, which make it definitely a symbol 
or a foreshadowing of Loki's destiny to inherit the TVA. Bro, it's almost the the name of the river in Hades that makes you forget. The Aletha, Alethe, the Aletha Hmm. River. River Stips. No, it's a different one. Oh, okay. The Alethe River. I could just, I could see these two words being almost the same, but it's the river that you drink that makes you forget everything. So that that word means uh, forgetfulness, which uh, is interesting relationship to the inheritance because a lot of, you know, the placental inheritance has been forgotten for generations. (laughs) Well, not to mention all sons of God or sons of Kronos type figures, which Mm -hmm. the TVA represents inevitably become the new top God after their patricide or castration of the father. Right. Othala though, whenever you do your philology on it, you get Od all the father, Odin, all father. Odal actually Odal in Odal in old Norse refers to the Scandinavian laws of inheritance, which established land rights for families that had owned that parcel of land over generations, restricting its sale to others outside of the family. They also, the Odal laws protected inheritance rights of daughters from outsider males that weren't in the immediate family. They, in fact, they actually still have this in Norway, at least partially called Odalsret, which is the same as the, what we would call a loidal title or a loidal right, which awesome. surpa- totally surpasses the idea of deeds and titles. It's kind of like, Absolute ownership based in tenure on the land. In Black's Law, a loyal is defined as free, not withholden uh, of any lord or superior, owned without ab- obligation of vassalage or fealty. It's the opposite of feudal. So well, companies who have used the Othala rune in the last century have been lambasted and canceled and often forced to apologize because it's considered a far right Nazi symbol. Because, of course, the idea of absolute ownership goes totally against the leftist ideology of state owned everything. Right. <laughs> and our loyal inheritance can only come if we know our true history. So I think this this rune and the ideas behind it are very very apropos for this show. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so it does kind of look like a bit of an ichthus, right? But also it's the top of an analema. You know, if you cut the analema off at the zero marcator, it actually cuts at the shoulders, not the neck. And uh, for the head to be on the ground here uh, is very interesting because uh, in the uh, Knights of Malta, they had a chamber underground where you would s- kneel on a red markation and then uh, voices could be projected into your skull with no echo. And so it would seem as though you were hearing the voice of God. And so they would imbibe in some sort of mind altering substance. And then the voice of God is projected with just the magic words to get you to go on a kill mission. And now you're the chosen special one for suicide for a suicide job. And so, and they would use John the Baptist's head as the trauma icon to open you up to receive the message. So, all of the ingredients of the Knights of Malta chamber is right here. And then, uh, and that's their inheritance. That's the Othala. And what's interesting is uh, the Knights of Malta, that island still today is renowned for its military uh, technology. They basically have cement bowls that are massive above ground that they point at the sky and they can hear incoming jets with just cement 
uh, structures that are capture the sound and channel it uh, so they can actually hear. They're like the super ears of the Mediterranean based off of these cement bowls that are all using sonic capture. Uh, so th that is the inheritance of Malta. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I'm going to also point out that Othala is the O rune, or the letter O, which is the circle, the wheel, wheel of fortune. <laughs> and and that's number 15, which this was the scene where the devil card and uh, B-15 came throwing the sword in to fulfill the devil card from the last episode. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. The in uh, the idea of inheritance with the wheel or the fortune card makes a lot of sense with the letter O, because... The father grows old, passes it on to the son who becomes the father who grows old, has children, et cetera. And it's like an endless circle whenever you act, whenever you're living on and with the land and with family and with true ownership without like state or paperwork, then there's there's no real beginning or end. It just is an eternal repeating cycle, which is how nature is more supposed to work. Then, okay, so after we see that, we are brought to where Loki's at, and we get this sort of drone flyover shot. And the first thing that we see in this big pile of rubble is the freaking lighthouse of Alexandria. <laughs> Which, you know, allegedly existed. Uh, allegedly. So, so this is, this will be, uh, this is very interesting. Um of course, the tower card uh, is card number 16. There is a weave that comes in in a little while around. Uh, so basically, uh, TVA is a 241 in ordinal reduced. 241 is the 53rd prime number. 53rd, 53 is a prime number, and it's the 16th prime number. So TVA has like a double prime number code a double reduction prime number code that falls collapses into the number 16 symbol of the tower. Also the tower of Alexandria has all of the ingredients. This is a really strange weave. I'll try to be uh, accurate and concise, but the ingredients of the architecture of a tower of these towers is the tripartite brain. Also the amygdala, which is the a Hebrew word for a tower is a magdala. And then there's a pineal gland is the light at the top in the tripartite brain, the uh, um, amygdala and the pineal. Those are actually the three ingredients that are used against you when you are in a crowd participating in rhetoric. When you're standing there in passive position with your slack jaw and you're looking upwards and you're going along to get along, they're actually using your amygdala, your tripartite brain and your pineal against you to circumvent, uh, to give you the Sapolsky treatment <laughs> and uh, get you to go get along to go along. And I just well, they call it amygdala hijack where. The, it's the effect where psychological stress causes the same response as if you're in physical danger. Right. So people who are in fight or flight in modern society where there aren't any tigers or bears around. Yes. Yes. Try to be, make sure you're not too close. Uh, I am getting a little bit of the crackle and a little bit of myself coming back. Maybe turn me down a bit too. Okay. Don't give in orders. <laughs> Yeah, so the amygdala, that's a big part. They also, they call it this lighthouse of Alexandria 
Pharos, like P-H-A-R-O-S. But remember, Pharaoh is corn as well. That's a Latin word for corn. Actually, there's like a whole story about Julius Caesar capturing the lighthouse of Alexandria as a crucial step to be able to deliver corn to his troops and supply lines. So corn, if we recall, is connected to Kronos and the crown. And that word corn has to do with radiance as well, like light shining and cornucopia. So the light at the top of the tower or the amygdala, as you put it, where the third eye is at up in the brain is also the portal or the gateway to higher self or to the divine or to God. Everybody, the Ophiuchus episode from Monday has got so much to do with this episode that we probably won't explicitly say, but I'm sure it'll be in the back of everyone's mind how how apropos those themes were. But yeah, the top of the lighthouse, uh, Pharos, they're calling it Pharos. They're talking about radiance and cornucopia. I actually have a lot to say because when I first saw this, I didn't realize it was the lighthouse of Alexandria that came later. So it just got me thinking about towers in general and you know what towers and the the sacred timeline the true history versus the mainstream academic history so here's some depictions of the lighthouse of alexandria uh well the one on the the one on the right is okay the on the left actually is the minar built in the center of the sassanian read Saxon <laughs> city of Gore in Iran. I remember Gore G to K switch or G to C switch. That's core. So the city of core corn, Kronos, cornucopia radiance. And on the right is a 1572 illustration of lighthouse of Alexandria. So no, no one necessarily knew what it looked like. The version that they used is from an illustration. It's not like anyone had a photo of it. So this is a more, this is an older illustration, supposedly of Pharos, and see the similarity to this city of Gore in Iran, uh, this Sassanian, S-A-S-S-A-X. On the, uh, the, the Minar, though, on the left is a temple to the sacred fire. And I think that that might be the symbolism of lighthouses or the, or the Pharos itself is a temple to the sacred fire maybe before or above and beyond or in conjunction with the idea of a lighthouse to guide ships. I I think that's possible. I also think the idea of a stupa is in the mix, but specifically back to the, the, the letter Kof, the Phoenician letter Kof, not the Hebrew Kaf and the idea of the eye of the needle right here. That's the eye of the needle is like the, the light at the top of the tower. Oh, nice. Yeah, and man. I, and it it uh, it can pierce. If it's a bright light, then it's piercing. It's penetrating. So the needle aspect is in, in integral there too. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it even it's like a penetrating insight <laughs> to even think of these thoughts. <laughs> but I want to remind everybody that we're going into this world that uh, Morbius is or Mobius. Mobius is already here, and his symbols we've established are the the chariot and the tower. He is uh, he is the epicure, the enthusiast with the shadow of glutton. He's number seven in all the ways. And it's going to prove out so hard that it just I got black eyes thinking about it. So the fact, 
that we're going into Mobius's space and the first thing we see as a tower is just reinforcing my suspicion that he is this number seven, which is the tower card. And then another quick thought, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I'm still in between worlds on our main Loki, the main character Loki. I think he is uh, artistically the embodiment of both the Thoth deck moon card, which has two lighthouses facing each other, and also the hanged man card, uh, which in this episode, he plays the hanging man a couple times because he falls on the ground again, upside down. He does it twice. So he's really filling the hangman, but he's also looking like, like his art, the way he's in his dark locks of hair, like his color schema is totally the moon card. So what's fascinating about that is that would make him a nine and a three which is the Thelemic magic number. And so while I'm stuck between worlds, is he the nine, the 18 becomes the nine with the moon card, or is he a number three, the hangman, the number 12 becomes the three. Is he a nine? Is he a three? Well, if I'm looking at this Thelemically, they probably want him to be both the hangman and the moon card, the nine and the three. Interesting stuff. The hanged man, I'm pretty sure now after that episode with Matheson, the hanged man is Ophiuchus. I'm pretty sure about that. And there's a, a lot of reason to think Loki's Ophiuchus specifically from this episode. So we'll we'll show that when we get there. But back to this city of gore that this tower on the left, this illustration of it. Uh, this is the ruin, the ruins of that tower. The city of gore was wheel shaped with a tower in the center, the sacred center. This, I think, is the timeline that's been written out of history where these cities with this structure we're everywhere. This circle with maybe uh, levels, think like Gondor in Lord of the Rings with a sacred center in the tower is an imitation Mount Maru. I think the priest system wanted to create is, you know, every region wanted to create their own Mount Maru for pilgrimage, for tribute, for all of that. And perhaps there's like energetic reasons why this is uh, a good way to build your civilization structurally. Because this was everywhere, but it's kind of a concealed thing. <laughs> and so going on into towers some more, these are on the left and right. These are minarets. Remember, men is the moon as well. <laughs> Min minarets. The thing we just looked at was minar. Same same word. So these minarets are found at Islamic mosques. They're very common with the Islamic mosques. And in the center here is the George Washington Masonic Memorial, which is supposedly modeled after the Lighthouse of Alexandria. That's <laughs> very interesting stuff. And then in a similar vein, you have this, this thing called the stupa, the Buddhist stupa, which is depicted on the right. Uh, and they also might call it a katya, or you might call it a tumulus. I think these stupas don't fit the sacred timeline so well either, which is why maybe we saw this so-called lighthouse that might be a stupa or tumulus pruned. Uh, they're found in Celtic culture, Buddhism, Hindu culture, all over the place. And then in some cases, you might get a similar thing, but it's more of a mound or a dome with a tower or without a tower, but the idea is across cultures that they hold relics or the remains of saints. The one on the left is a Irish Celtic tower. 
The one in the middle is a Phoenician tower. And the one on the right is what you call Greco Buddhist. Because never forget, there's such a thing as the Greco Buddhist empire. And Greek mythology is just a confusion and uh, extrapolation on whatever Buddhism came from. I say confusion because the system get, I don't know if they did it or if like later authors just misunderstood, but suffice to say, it's all very confused, but comes from the same source. Now with the H K C letter swap, remember that the, uh, the, the Celtic word for their, their churches that these towers are always built near, they called them Kells or kills. So with the letter swap as possible, that means you're talking about hills, a.k.a. mounds. Mound is what the word stupa means to the Buddhists. And also just think of all the mound building civilizations. It, there's there's something with these towers. I'll just say that. It, I don't know what the mystery is exactly, but I think that the similarity uh, like for what they seem to have been for and how they're around holy places tells us something. Now, this Buddhist stupa on the right or the illustration of it was from a place called Lorian Tangai. It's an archaeological site in Pakistan, which was very central to the Greco-Buddhist empire. And there were many stupas and religious buildings and Buddhist statues discovered there. Here's just a couple of artifacts from that place, including a coin with the word. Can you see that? That's B-O-D-D-O or Beta, uh, Omicron, Delta, Delta, Omicron, Bodo, Buddha in Greek letters. And on the left here, you really got to note the cosmic egg symbolism. Do you see the eye of the needle here? And yeah, <laughs> the serpentine surrounding this egg shape. It's a half egg, right? The dome. But there's a serpent surrounding the cosmos. It's the exact same thing as what the, the Norse people, Saxon people believed about it. The, the, all of it. So that, that's my tangent that I, I had to get into after the, uh, after just seeing the library of Alexander, I could help myself now beyond that tower though, as we return to the scenery of the episode, well, what do you see? It's a mound of relics. I mean, it's a mound. I don't know what else to call it. It's a heap. <laughs> from the pruned timelines. And there's lots of little things that you see as you fly through this. I thought this was weird. This building had the word never on it. The best I could find about that is that it might be related to the, there's a word never in Walloon, which is like a descendant of the Gauls in Europe, the Walloon people. And Seemingly, this never word, which means snow, might be related to nivare in Latin, meaning a similar thing. And then you see uh, the Avengers Tower, but with Kang on it. This is your first foreshadowing in the series that Kang is behind it all. We was Kangs. <laughs> this is from this is based on the, the Kang Avengers Tower is based on a old plot in the comics where. Kang Enterprises from China bought Avengers Tower from Tony Stark, bought out the Avengers, essentially. So I think this is here like as a little reference to China buying out the West, buying out Hollywood, etc. I think that could be could see signaled that. here. 
You know, uh, what uh, an old weave from my Tarot Avengers work is this uh, Tony Stark's tower is in the shape of Anubis. It's the new Anubis profile. So when you put the uh, Tony Stark tower facing itself, you're looking at the moon card because there are two Anubis figures facing each other profiled against the lighthouses on that uh, on the Thoth deck moon card. Um, but it's also the ads tool, uh, the nose scrape device. And if you put two ads tools 69ing each other, they become the uh, the two dippers at the North Pole. Uh, and Anubis, one of his epithets is he who is at the place of embalming. That's why the nose scrape of the PCR was a Saturnian uh, uh, a gift to the underworld. You are giving a little piece of your information to Anubis. Uh, congratulations. And now you're Tony Stark on the database. I got to shout out the great Kevin McNally, brother Marty Leeds Big of up. the Gnostic Church and Academy. This dude is, has been roughing it, uh, building his church yurt, braving the cold, keeping his wife and dogs alive, total hero, total champion. And yet, and yet, with all the stuff that he's building and all of the noble suffering, <laughs> he's the biggest tipper, best super chatter on the channel all the time consistently thank you brother marty appreciate you man if he can do it you guys can do it pass yeah. the basket around as marty would say big <laughs> put a lot of work into this big respect right. man good job living intense man it's intense living <laughs> that's right and that was some gravy slick uh, that was some gravy by the way with the the nose scraper i sometimes I might run past what you say. It's not because I didn't appreciate it. It's because we got about a trillion more things to say. So the next thing we see is this giant smoke cloud. This is like all of these lost artifacts are concealed by the fog of time. That's how the sacred timeline is maintained is that the fog of time conceals the previous civilization. Right. And we are now with Loki and the other Loki's, and Loki is told by Loki, this is the void. That's Eliath. Let's go. We're going to get eaten. So now we know where we're at. We're in the void. Let's just think about the void because there's part of the esoteric tradition is that the in the nothingness or like pre-creation Brahma or whoever the, the creator God is exists uh, or exists in the void or is the void something like that. And then when space is created, that's when material and space are created, that's kind of like the Maya or the mother idea. But the father is either inside the egg or creates the egg out of the void, something like that. So when we just do the simple V to B swap with void, we get void, which is like Bud, Buddha, that's in there. The Hindi word for void is Kali Pan, which is like Kali, the destroyer or destruction and Pan, which is all. So all is destroyed, the void. Then the, we also hear the phrase null and void a lot when we're referring to void and null being like zilch, nada, zero, nothing. Null is Nile or one of the versions of the savior deity Nihilus. The Nile is Osiris, is the top god. The Greek word 
Kenos means void or emptiness. And that's Cain. That's the smith. That's the, again, similar figure. Kenos is there's also a Greek word that has a similar meaning as void. That's akuros or akuros. That's like a or a, which means without. And then kuros is the Greek spelling of Cyrus. Cyrus is the is the name of the son. It's the savior. the The book of Isaiah is all about prophesying Cyrus as a Messiah figure who is an emperor of Persia. But that's also all astro theology. And then the Latin word for empty or void is vacus. Anybody know what happens when you do the V to B switch with vacus? <laughs> it's Bacchus. <laughs> so even just wrapped up in the idea of void, we're, we're finding our, our God and our savior, you know, that the, that nothing contains the seed of everything or everything when everything is all one and all together, it's equivalent to nothing because it's in a state of perfection. There's no change, no movement. It's completion. So it's death stasis. So that's, I think the, the symbolism laid up in just that word void. And that's where we are here. It's like the end of time, nothing changes. Everything that comes here is gone is nothing now we got to talk about Elioth. unless you want to add on the, the void weave i bet you do no I, this is exactly where i wanted to go about the smoke and the wheel card so yeah if i pull that next one up this is it <laughs> well this gets interesting because Elioth is obviously the typhon figure this is the smoke is a monster right and we <laughs> we got to talk about how uh Wow, where's maybe I have more to say about it later. Probably do. Okay, let's trust my slides that I have to talk about Eliath more later. But we'll just start with saying that Eliath is the uh Typhon figure on the wheel, right? Now, this brings to mind also a very important theme of the episode, which is purgatory. This is pur they're in purgatory right now. Purgatory is the idea that after a soul has, after someone has departed their body and they've died, that even if, even if you've been redeemed by the savior and you're saved from eternal punishment, there's a thing called temporal punishment, time, like punishment with a timer on it. So this is a Catholic idea and a pagan idea. So you have first year, you are saved from eternal punishment. You're not going to hell, but you are going to this purgatory place where you're going to get punished for a while until, uh, until you've got enough punishment to go to heaven. <laughs> this comes like the justification for the purgatory doctrine for Catholics comes from an apocryphal book to Protestants, but it's part of the canon for, uh, for Orthodox as well called the Maccabees. There's Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2. It's just a very small reference in Maccabees 2 of a man named Judas who pays 12,000 pieces of silver as what the Catholics would call an indulgence, which is that the, your, you know, your loved ones, relatives, ancestors, they're suffering in purgatory. But if you pay the church enough money, give them enough gold and silver, they can intercede or that counts as that repays their crimes. <laughs> so 
so funny. And then the, a lot of the rest of the book of second book of Maccabees or Maccabees two is about Judas going around with his, with his gang of uh, true believers and finding all the people who all the Gentiles who don't have their weans clipped and forcibly clipping their foreskins off. It's great stuff. Oh, great man. stuff. Oh, it's, it's horrific. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. It is a wild book and you can kind of see why they took it out, but I think they're by taking it out, they removed a great amount of really useful information on how we got well, on how and why churchianity is so crazy. They don't even know themselves. They're missing crucial pieces to self-reflect on. But yeah, Maccabees uh, means hammers, but it also has the word bees in it. Um, and the Maccabee family line is very fascinating. Uh, I would recommend uh, James Valiant and a lot of his research, again, around the Tacitus Flavius and the Maccabee, Maccabee revolt. He has a lot to say about it. But um, but the bees and the, uh, the beehive constellation is in Cancer. Um, and again, the Maccabees means hammers. And whenever there's a revolution, the hammer always comes into the picture. So because there, you need to have be the authority on who's going to tell the story because the winners always get to decide what degree is going to be allied upon. Um, so, yeah, that Maccabees is crazy information. But yeah, big up. Oh, um, and, uh, so, yeah, the, this Wheel of Fortune card has the spinning smoke is integral to it. You know, this card, uh, for me, it means so many things, but uh, Blake's uh, Satanic Mills, the dark Satanic Mills that Blake wrote about in his poetry is embedded into this card. That poem, which the title of that poem escapes me all the time. It's such a weird title. It's really weirdly worded. Well, that poem that contains the dark satanic mills reference is the alternate national anthem of england it's their secret national anthem and it's william blake giving praise to the dark satanic mills that are churning out the souls of man for the sake of the industrial revolution and then of course we have to mention tyrrhenian purple and murex the murex dye made from uh the purple dye made from Murex seashell that I think Karl Marx is actually hailing the Phoenicians in his name, but he was in England when he wrote his manifesto. He was in the, the um, dark satanic mills. He was literally in the shadows of the dark satanic mills. When he wrote the communist manifesto, all of those things are alive and well and imbued into uh, this Typhonian destructive churning force that is going to uh, grill up revolutions and Maccabee revolts uh, for years and years to come just for the sake of efficiency. I would say if I had to sum up this wheel card in one dis devastating word, it would be efficiency. <laughs> you know, the, the Blake poem, the William Blake poem you're referencing is called Jerusalem. It's not very long either. Isn't, it funny, how, isn't it funny how the word Jerusalem and journalism Sounds so similar in the news. The news sounds like another word. I don't know. Just I do. I'm just going to read it. It's very short. Yeah, sure. It's a good one. Yeah, go for it. I think it, I'm glad you brought it up because it actually fits. It's it fits this conversation really well. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? 
And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds, unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. So there's a lot here because, first of all, the the area that they're in, in this void, I was reading what the producers had to say about it. And they originally were going to go for like a super surreal Dada-esque, you know, uh, something what's the guy with the melting clocks dolly <laughs> something like that yeah. and then later in production they decided to make it look like uh england they specifically made it look like england and you see in this mention teletubbies <laughs> I, don't I, heard, know. I heard them say that the director wanted it to look like the landscape of the teletubbies which they may have started there, which is fascinating because I've joked around about the sun card being the Teletubbies card because it has the big animated sun. But uh, that, that's just so funny because one of the characters is the sun card here in a minute. So I just wanted to know if you heard the same rumors. I didn't. But this is the savior, you know, Loki being the, the, the holy lamb of God character. He's on England's pleasant pastures here he's come to england and there's this line in the poem did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills well you have the giant smoke monster cloud and you see a lot of shots from above in this episode where you really see the green hills there's a sword there's a chariot there's lots of (laughs) there's probably dark satanic males there's a lot from this poem that actually fits the iconography in this episode so that's a really good call also want to go back to a comment from uh, Zerlath, purgatory is kind of like some iterations on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah, bingo. Buddhism has got purgatory. It's for sure there. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, just a real quick weave on uh, about the pharaohs. For one, Joseph Benet Biden has the word pharaoh in his name. It's between his first and his middle name, pharaoh. Is hiding out right there. He is the quintessential number nine. He's basically Hades. Uh, he's marketed to be a perfect embodiment of Hades. Forget the whatever the human being is. The, the concept, the egregore of Biden is Hades. But um, and the quintessential number nine, moon card, 18, becomes number nine. Those The pharaohs of the uh, of those two towers... Um, I want to uh, mention that if we are talking about uh, the Alexandria and these towers of Alexandria, we should also keep the muses in our mind uh, because the Alexandria was a museum first and the technology, the techne of the muses was built into the building way before they started accumulating all the writing that everybody's so worried about. So everybody's worried about, oh, we lost all those books. Well, it turns out the techne was there way before and that uh, the muses are, in fact, built into the structure itself. So the word Alexandria should not make everybody worried about the lost written words. That's all a bunch of book cope can go fugazi to the wind. The muses are the bedrock, uh, and we can rebuild it again if we just get uh, reacquainted with the muses. I had to say that. That's wow. what 
that's what Ferros means to me. When I see a lighthouse, I think uh, the with a little bit of musing, we could rebuild this all uh, like perennial wisdom. I'm going to add to that. So you see how the Typhon figure is descending from above. And in this episode, the head of this Typhon smoke monster is always coming down from above. Right. Well, let's look. Let's dig into this a little more. What you see on the screen here uh, is the Dalet Yad Vav, D-Y-V. This is one of the words that equals 20 in Hebrew and biblical Hebrew specifically. There, it only appears once. Remember, 20 is Kaf. That's the letter on the fortune card, Kaf, 20. So we're looking for words that equal 20 in biblical Hebrew. This word means fluid darkness or could be a reference to ink. So, I mean, we're looking at fluid darkness here. The funny thing about this ink is you brought up like, you know, if the muses are a spirit, it's not about the written word that in fact, many philosophers thought that putting things down on paper and to books was the beginning of the end in the first place, that that was what causes the downfall. Uh, you know, we got to consider too darkness. This fluid darkness is an ancient symbol, very ancient symbol for all things pertaining to subconscious forces and activities, which this episode is very much like Loki going into his own subconscious to rectify the trauma that's there so that he can reach higher self. But this word, Dalet Yadvav, D-Y-V, you could pronounce it like Deo. So that's like Deus, the, the word for the deity, and it means ink. So I think here's an interesting link to the idea of the God of eloquence or the God of writing, God of language, or that this this figure, whoever the deity is, one of the things it represents is the secret of letters, the secret of writing. Anyway, this word Deo or D-Y-V only appears once in the Bible, one time. And it's in the book of, you guessed it, Jeremiah, which we already heavily talked about in the episode, the third episode, Lamentus, which was all about the book of Lamentations and the prophet Jeremiah, like secretly, it was secretly about that. But definitely the alternate Lokis in this episode represent his subconscious forces. And then I got to, this one's weird. Got to add this in. Do you see, let me zoom in. We're looking at Ursa Major and there's a star right here. What's it called? Elioth. It's a star in Ursa Major. Awesome. That's where the word comes from. That's awesome. And that's, uh, that's kind of the beginning of the tale. Right. Uh, that's a major that's a major markation like uh, that archway of the Ursa Major is like such a helpful uh, compass. That's a great that's a very powerful star right there. Oh, Dylan just pointed out that that word is also means dove means black in Irish, but also bear in Hebrew. And no, here it is, it's the bear. Oh, that's cool as hell. And, you know, the. um one of the characters that's going to tie into this in the, in the next episode on the big reveal is a very dark character. <laughs> so in the uh, recent Juan on Juan episode, number 183 with our buddy Mario Garza, where Juan and Mario spoke with a gentleman named Michael Staley, who was the publisher of Crowley and acolyte Kenneth Grant. Staley in that episode states that in Thelema, 
dilemma, the Crowleyan system that Grant was a part of, according to Kenneth Grant's writings, he said that Ursa Major is correlate to Typhon. So I think Mario is probably right when he he tipped me off that maybe they don't mean the same thing with Typhon as what we might consider the traditional Egyptian iconography, but it's there. You know, that that's the best link I could dig up was that that particular tradition was linking Ursa Major with Typhon. While there's a star in Ursa Major called Eliath and there's a big black smoke monster called Eliath in this episode. What does Ursa Major do? It goes around the pole. It circles the pole. It guards the throne. It guards the higher self. It, you can conceive of it being like something you got to get past to get to higher self for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, so card number 10 and card number 19 are both reduced to a one. So they are both in the station of the perfectionist performer personality type with the shadow of wrath. And the infernal spirit of wrath is, of course, Satan. Uh, and the remedial virtue is patience. Uh, so these are just some of the, uh, the symbolic aspects that will unfold every time we come back to this uh, to this wheel of to the, I guess it's just a fortune card in this deck. He took wheel of out of it. And it's just the word fortune, uh, which. Uh, to me, there's a lot of uh, UFO stuff going on around this card as well, because it's an inanimate object. Um, but in the word fortune is the word UFO, letter R, 10. Uh, and uh, also, oh, also, if you take the word UFO and you subtract one letter from each of those letters, U minus one, F minus one, O minus one equals T-E-N. And this is card number 10. And so there's all these weird things about breakaway civilization, unknown technology, dark technology, off the books kind of stuff going on. Dylan says the second Ada in the Lima is accented, so it should be the Lima. <laughs> Dylan's my speech corrector perpetually because of all the audiobooks we've done. He's... <laughs> No, it's set me right. Thanks, buddy. Keep I like those, that. Keep those diphthongs on the radar. I want to be impeccable with my speech. Okay, so we're going past Elias, huge important figure in this episode. And now we see Sylvie with Renslayer. And Sylvie's got her on the ropes, pointing this pointy stick at her. Give me your tin pad. Who's really behind the TVA? The Renslayer says she's in the dark. The dark, you know, that idea. Back to the dove, DUV. Poor Judge Renslayer, your whole reality's been destroyed. Tell me, how does it feel to be on the other side of it? I definitely think like that on the other side phrasing reminds me again of the main theme of this episode being purgatory. And then <laughs> and then Renslayer, who's basically a priest in this setting, priest Renslayer convinces Sylvie that Loki is in purgatory. Uh, you know, she's like, what if I said that Loki isn't dead? And then she starts coming up with spinning all kinds of bullshit, literally spinning like a wheel. Uh, you see, <laughs> oh, I maybe <laughs> let me just read, read some of the exposition from this part. She's explaining when we prune a branched reality, it's impossible to destroy all of its matter. So we move it to a place in the timeline where it won't continue growing. Basically, the branched timeline isn't reset. It's transferred to a void at the end of time. 
where every instance of existence collides at the same point and simply stops. So it's not the end of a line. It's the center of a wheel. Because where's the point where all things collide? It's the center, center of the wheel. The uh, the dogma, <laughs> she says, states that the end of time is still being written and that the timekeepers are transforming it into utopia. Utopia means no place. And also she's holding up her palm, but with a, you know, a wheel circle, making a circle with her finger and thumb. Palm, remember, cough, the letter on the fortune card, the wheel card means palm. So there she is holding it up. <laughs> and then she's like, I can help you if you trust me, says every priest who's about to sell you an indulgence to help you with your grief of losing a loved one who you've been told is suffering in purgatory. <laughs> So indulgences, what's that? That's excellent. That's exactly what it is. We made up. We made up a, a way station for your loved one. And if you're nice to us and do everything we say, we won't send poo poo letters to, to their for their report card in heaven. <laughs> and then the next thing Sylvie does is hands her the temp pad. But when you look at the way it's shot, it's like she's just handed over the wallet. Here's my wallet. Indulgence transaction complete. In case anyone's not fully sure about it, indulgences are the commutation of for money of part of the temporal penalty due for sin. So the practical satisfaction that was part of the sacrament of penance. They were granted on papal authority and made available through accredited agents. <laughs> And, you know, something crazy about this, you know, this is like the foundation of insurance. You know, if uh, we're, we're going to give you the best seat in the house after you die and whatever. Uh, and then that uh, and then that turns into like a payment plan to keep your good spot in the in the graveyard. You know, and then now what is crazy is this recipe for insurance. It's expanded out into real estate. And it's almost if you think about it, the same recipe is going on with your house now. It's almost like your house has become the tomb that you're keeping, that you're maintaining uh, for the sake of other people's who have any interest in what, you know, the HOA basically. Uh, but yeah, it's just crazy what this insurance program has done starting with the graveyard and then it's expanded out. And now people are in these houses and now their house is like, you know, boxes and they're all made out of ticky tacky. So my mom, my mom owns a business and she employs about 50 people. And she told me that this year, the insurance rates are going up 40%. That's each person paying 40% more for their insurance that they either don't use or when they use it, they get poisoned or maimed. I, I got a rant real quick. All right. The reason insurance has to stay in our vernacular is because of the word rents. It's because of the word rents. You have to be cleansing your mind constantly. This is, this is such a crazy weave. This is how money makes you forgetful enough as it is. As it is, money uh, breeds forgetfulness. But when you put money into the insurance system, the, uh, the level of forgetfulness is exponential. And so I just and and I'm I'm speaking on so many levels, not just because there's the word rinse in the word insurance. That's just the beginning. That's just the, a crumb of what I'm getting at. 
But you see what my thought process is here. They are brainwashing the fuck out of us. And the more we say insurance, the more we are rinse washing our hands of the situation and not reflecting very well anymore. Um, yeah, uh, I could go on and on. But one last, uh, uh, this is why he was in a convertible because he didn't have coverage. Right. They got to keep these programs running. And who is this character? Rent Slayer? Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. Uh, and another, I mean, it goes on and on, but like, you know, we go in and out of portals. Every time you go in and out of portal of a doorway or into a different room, it's actually strangely having a psychological effect on you. They harness that in film a lot. Um, but then the other thing is when we go to the bathroom, like we go to the bathroom and we're very thorough about clean, being cleanly. That's the cornerstone of, of culture. But funny enough, there are some people in this world who go to the bathroom way more than we do and who take it almost to a spiritual level every time they're in there. And they are very thorough about the rinsing and the cleaning. And I just want to say there is some bleed over to the psychic self over uh, over maintaining <laughs> that we become forgetful in these rituals, too, in, in strange ways to each their own, but some more so than others, I'd say. And our language is there to grease those wheels. All right. All right. So moving forward, we're, we're look, we look at uh, the landscape a little more and there's this crashed UFO, which totally reminds me of Buz, Buz Ludza, the Bulgarian communist monument. And we talked about this in a previous episode, either the first one or the second one, that the TVA interior is actually based on this structure, like the murals and the color scheme and everything. So this is basically a communist cathedral or church. And look, it's on a hill. It's a circle. And there's a tower next to it. It's just in case anyone wasn't sure that communism was a religion. I'm sure everyone here already was aware of that, but it totally is. And also, it, again, so this just fits the pattern of what we saw earlier with the uh, those towers when we were getting into that tangent. I also thought it would be fun to just break down the word buzludza, which in the Slavic languages, booze is ice, lewd is like crazy or insane. And then za, they really probably will pronounce it more like ya. I've seen it spelled J-A instead of Z-A. So, uh, <laughs> Buzludza, insane ice god. <laughs> I don't know if that's important. I just thought that was funny. You know, if you break that word split, that one, you, that's what you get. That's cool. I like it. I like that you got the lutes in there. Lutes is one of my favorite words. You know, the luda, ludicrous. It's a form of love, right? That's one of the nine different forms of love is is luda. I'm pretty sure playful love. I think, and then it has a, a luda has a. a other side of the same coin is pragma. So things that are ludicrous are the opposite of pragmatic. And so this house doesn't look very pragmatically built, you know? So when they call it Luda, uh, it's very apropos. Well, as you're talking about that, Rachel professed that she loves how you care for everybody here. <laughs> you're talking about love. And then wifey with the big weave that I missed Lo Thank you, Jenny. Loki is loco, a.k.a. crazy. And he is basically crazy or mischievous in a lot of depictions. I mean, just if you need evidence of that, there's a, a scene in mythology where 
he ties his testicles to a goat and then like scares the goat or something. And the goat runs off in one direction and he does this all to make somebody laugh. And he's an ice giant. He's uh, a Jotun. So Booz Ludza could be the insane ice god, could be Loki. Didn't even think about that. That's, That's cool. such a good weave. That is super cool. Man, I really like that. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, for, there's a thing about ice now anymore. Like having ice at the end of our words, like it is Doric. And, you know, ice means like or similar to. In German, it's like ich. It's a ish. In French, I guess it would be E-S-C-H-E or whatever, right? Esh. Um, but I think of it as harmonizing to. When we say it is like something, I think it is even better to say it harmonizes to this other thing. When we say it is like. So Doric is Dor, Dorian-like, or it harmonizes to Dorian. Because I see is the Isa rune, and that is the uh, the rune for harmony. Uh, in music. So I like the Isa as harmony and we use it to harmonize our weaves so often, you know, we're literally harmonizing when we do these, uh, these doctrine of signatures, we're finding the harmony, the harmonic quality. So I see as a, as the end of a word for me brings forward Euterpe, the muse with the flute, who is the muse of music which we are harmonizing our weaves to. All right. <laughs> yeah. If you describe something that I see at the end, like Doric door, I see that's what you're seeing. You're describing it. Okay. So this is uh, a little hard to make out because it's so far away, but there's one part in the show where you see this faint, but it's there three headed three heads on a statue or maybe it's not a statue. I think this is a reference from the comics to the living tribunal who was the personification of multiversal law. Why that matters is because there's a very strong weave in this series, or at least this first up first six episodes where like Odysseus Loki is kind of circling the drain, if you will, where he goes through the gate of winter and then somehow he finds himself back at the gate of winter and never makes it to springtime. He's like in this, just like Odysseus astrotheologically goes through this in his story where the symbolism is him just continually bumping around in the winter months until he finally gets back home. That's kind of how Loki is in this episode, in the, this series. He's always stuck going from like Capricorn back to back to Libra. Like in a loop there, I think. So anyway, the Living Tribunal is a, a comics thing. It's like a super being, <laughs> the law, the Trinity. And then above the Living Tribunal, there's the one above all. That's like the Supreme Being. And the Supreme Being, the one above all, lives in this place called the House of Ideas. And that's basically the, the same. That's Marvel's version of heaven is the House of Ideas which I find kind of cool. They also call Marvel comics like Stan Lee called it the house of ideas. So it's like kind of a meta reference to the fact that beyond their universe is like another universe where they're just a story that's made up. And uh, I don't, I'm not going to lie. There's, there's something to that. <laughs> you know, there's that, that rings true that, that this whole, that all of existence is like, ideas nested within universes nested within ideas nested within universes 
Right. Just look at video games. There could be something to that and dreams, all of that. So when I saw the living tribunal head off in the corner, thought it would be worth uh, bringing that up, the sort of Gnosticism that that invokes and how that's definitely part. Yeah. You know, uh, I ended up kind of get. I saw that that House of Ideas was part of the canon and I got kind of into it for a minute. But the whole thing totally rings true for me as well, Chance, uh, because of my weave on Hades is the head. And that ideas are that are Hades. And <laughs> it's the same. It's the same thing. Hades means hidden. And so ideas are these hidden uh, thought forms that we, we exchange all the time. And so, you know, the seven streams that surround your head, those are the seven gates of the cranium. There's two eyes, two nose holes, the mouth, the two ears. That's the seven rivers that make up the Hades of your head. Uh, and if, uh, if the weather's not so good in there, it's not, it's not pleasant, but then you just move over to this side of Hades and everything's lovely. <laughs> Dylan says, I woke up from a nightmare the other day where I was at Joe Rogan's house and he turned into a monster and I had to flee. That sounds horrible, but he's so small. Couldn't you just step on him or did he get, did he grow really big? Whenever he transformed? He's got that jump switch roundhouse, bro. Don't get yeah, it. But like, he's going to jump. How high can he really jump? I mean, he's what th- three inches tall. Okay, we're shin guards. I'll say that. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Uh, in this next shot, we see these things called the void turkeys. <laughs> I actually thought that I had a close up of them, so I'm gonna have to zoom in. I I lost that, but there's these little turkey or peacock birds right the the creators of the show called them void turkeys but also referred to them as peacocks they're the peacock is a symbol of the purgatory or death and rebirth theme the ancient the ancient greeks believed that the flesh of the peacock never decayed even after death which is why it became associated with the symbol of immortality and oh here we go i do have a yeah yeah i got this good good close up the uh they're often found in iconography depicting death and rebirth in muslim belief the peacock guarded the gates of paradise and was expelled with adam and eve because it let satan enter the garden i really like that one also the oh writings of ovid like relate peacocks to argus the 100 eyed god and that Hera had Argus's hundred eyes preserved forever in a peacock's tail to immortalize her faithful watchman. Or sometimes she just transformed Argus into a peacock. They also eat poisonous snakes and are thus referred to as serpent slayers. And Carl Jung gave them association with the self because the peacock annually, there's the wheel, renews his plumage and therefore has a relation to all cyclical changes in nature and interestingly they even made these peacocks have like just a ball for a head or or a wheel weirdly enough and then here on the right you see the vatican with the giant pine cone representing the pineal the third eye the portal to the divine the higher self and then the peacocks flanking it so temples so this this uh vatican peacock depiction is even more perfect than i would have guessed at first because the Pavel constellation is at the base at the South Pole near the Sigma Octantis. 
And so having it down at this exact location where it is in the, the cup that the pine cone is sitting in, that mount, is in the shape of Ara Altair, which is right next to the peacock. These are coterminal constellations to each other. And so Pavo, Pavo is the peacock in the heavens. And uh, it's just absolutely, it's just impeccable to have the peacock down there by this cup. It's not really a cup. It's a furnace or a, uh, or a sacred table, a sacred offering space. Uh, but yeah, Pavo is one of my favorite constellations. But uh, Chance, don't you think, uh, isn't it funny that they look like running lowercase j's? And the j is what letter? Letter yeah, ten. Tend. Yep, yeah. letter ten. So there's the Wheel of Fortune again. Uh, and they even have the, they have feathers, of course, but that monkey on the Wheel of Fortune card has f- appears to be wearing feathers. He actually looks like a feathered monkey, strangely enough. Uh, so yeah, uh, there's the there's the ten again hiding out in plain sight. And you know, later on, I don't know if you caught this. Did you see that they cook one? Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, I did. That comes up. So yeah, they're eating a they're eating a lowercase J. <laughs> okay, let me get back to my slides. All right, so now we also have this. Gator Loki, good times. The, <laughs> I mean, just having a Gator Loki, there's so much that that opens up, but you gotta, of course, remember the associations with Typhon or Set and the ancient Egyptian word for sovereign was actually depicted with a crocodile hieroglyph. So I think it's kind of interesting to see the croc with the crown. I think it was like if you had uh, three crocodiles in a row or clustered together, that meant sovereign. If it was just one, it probably just meant crocodile. And then when you see it on a platform like this, then it's the god Sobek. But we got to talk a lot about Sobek. So (laughs) Sobek was regarded as the god of the Nile because he controls the waters and was responsible for making the the, uh, soil fertile. Notice in Sobek that the word Bach is in there. Bach, like Bacchus. Bacchus stream in German. And again, Sobek is regarded as the god of the Nile. But who else is the god of the Nile? Osiris. Horus is Osiris' son. So basically the continuation of Osiris. The thing. Cow, chance. I'm sorry. I'm just having an epiphany. Sobek on shoes. So in the full card of the Thoth deck, Sobek is on the boot of the full card. He's under the boot. This is Sobek conscious. It's the Sobek conscious. Sobek on the shoes is the Sobek conscious on the full card. That's what the that's what the picto mystery of it was all along. The Sobek conscious. Okay, and sorry. That the just old, on me. But the old Loki is the most fool like in his behavior most gesture like and this Sobek is under in this shot is under underfoot he's always underfoot of the others under the shoes in a sense that's a good weave yeah. uh, but why what I think is good about this part what I want to point out and I'll say this a million times in my life but it's my theory that 
the multitude of gods and goddesses that we are presented from the ancient world and made to look at the pagan system as like, oh, look how crazy they were. They believed in a bazillion gods. I think that to a large degree, we we really only had like the Trinity and then that resolving into one and that epithets, that is titles of these deities and compound words that represented an epithet were mistaken or intentionally taken to obscure the system as separate gods, separate entities that confuses everybody because Sobek is a great example of how one God gets made into many by misunderstanding his titles and symbolic attributes. Let me explain. Sobek emerged from the primeval waters of none to create the world. The Nile was formed from the crocodile's sweat. In another myth, Sobek hatches from an egg, cosmic egg. All life comes from either an egg, the waters of the womb, or a seed. Each of these life-giving devices is found in mythologies in relation to stories of transformation, including the egg-shaped rock when Jesus is resurrected. The uh, it, Sobek is also associated with the sun god Horus, as you see here. There's the falcon head, or the, the falcon head can also be Ray. And there's falcon head on the body of a crocodile. There's also stories of Sobek helping Osiris be reassembled, helping Horus find Osiris's parts. And in another myth, Horus transforms into a crocodile to find Osiris's parts. So you see that really Sobek and Horus are pretty much the same guy. And going back, you see here on this hieroglyphic, the cross is under him. He's on the cross. Right. That's so back when you see him on a platform like this, he's got the sun on his head, yada, yada. <laughs> so that's huge. That's that, like the crown on this Loki here. This is a Loki. He's a crocodile and he's a Loki. So Loki is a Her Hermes figure. He's a Jesus figure. That means that the crocodile is the Jesus figure. You're telling you here whether or not they mean to. What we can pull out of this is that, yeah, so Beck is a Horus figure and we can syncretize all these gods and have a lot easier time understanding the system when we get, when we don't have our heads trying to wrap around a bazillion different characters and who fits in where and, and see that it's all the psychodrama of one being of the Supreme being. It's all of the frat, like parts of self, just like you are one being one self with all the different parts represented by the Zodiac big stuff there. Yeah, you know, I'm. This is fun. This is really fun. The Sobek action, you know, the subconscious uh, is really hitting me hard because um, I've got a big weave about um, all of the uh, seashells by the seashore being seeded in our minds during the calamities uh, and the emergency and the sea urchin and the watching out, watching your step and not being sure if you're six feet social uh, distanced enough. Uh, these are things that were subconsciously seated in our mind. So we will watch our watch. Uh, and that is literally how we're wired that if something's down below us, then we tread lightly. You know, it's like a, it's almost like a, a they're playing on our natural reflexes to uh to watch our step really and it's in our language that's what i'm getting at is that our language is actually putting a bunch of warning signs uh 
<laughs> slippery when wet all throughout uh, the landscape of our, our psychic shared experience. Uh, but yeah, sub Sobek. <laughs> um, I think this has a lot to do with the subject of in law also. Um, I think that's fascinating that we've around it relating to chance because when you become the subject of the reason you're in court, then you're locked in the hot seat. So, and so part of the game is not to be the subject at hand and to not be subjugated. So it's so fascinating that there's a sovereignty tie-in to this alligator. Um, and then over on the slick dissident channel, the full card, you know, has turned into this map of North and South America. Our Altair is under the arm of the fool. He's getting, he's having mind altering substances, uh, influencing him. And then there's the Buotes constellation by his boot. And underneath the Buotes constellation by his boot is this alligator on that full card. That in my read relates to Drake's passage between Antarctica and, uh, and Argentina. Um, Argentina is in the headlines right now. They just put a new boy king in place in Argentina to piss everybody off with a crazy haircut that I think relates to boy Loki here. Um, but this Sobek in this Drake's passage between Argentina and uh, uh, Antarctica, where they're literally where Adam is reaching out to touch God you know, that painting where Adam is trying to pull the finger of God to see if he farts. Uh, that's Antarctica reaching out for uh, for Argentina. That straight, that passage is infested with scientists right now and all the scientific optimism of presuming we can control the planet with this location. Because if you've been w- with me on my journey over on my, on my channel, Drake's passage is said to control the climate of the world. This one location is essentially the pressure point uh, where if you wanted to, whatever, do something diabolical, James Bond, like they love to with their Klaus, uh, their Klaus Barbie Oppenheimer Schwab program, whatever that's all about, Drake's passage is crucial to that idea. And so it becomes a subconscious trigger button that I think they can push periodically a thousand different ways. And I'm getting a real strong thread on it. But this little alligator character here is the embodiment of a crucial trigger point for climate control. And I think that I'm speaking more psychically than I, than I am literally. I think I'm speaking on all the levels. Uh, but yeah, this is Drake's passage, essentially, uh, in, a, in a single symbol. That's what I would say this is. And they are subconsciously going to crank up the heat uh, as the where there's smoke, there's fire. A lot of this chance actually threads really heavily onto the uh, the rough map of hell from The Economist from 2012. There's a lot of these symbols actually play right into that map, but I'll just kind of leave it at that. Uh, that yeah, the, the climate change control switch next to the devil's tail on The Economist magazine is basically this alligator. <laughs> only only you can could say that sentence. <laughs> That's why I love having you. Awesome. All right. So going to jump forward here. There's this part where Loki's like, why? Okay. Why are there so many of you? And I had this thought, I don't know why this came to me, but this is me having a slick moment. (laughs) All right. So what's the big, what's the big thing that the like communism is trying to do away with what the left is upset about what the diversity 
politics of the world is all about is hom hom homogenous cultures are being chipped away at, be, you know, importing new people, importing foreigners, importing welfare cases, et cetera. And uh, this word Hamas, that means evildoer. I'm realizing that all of the pruned Lokis, they're homogenous. They're homogenous. <laughs> they're the evildoer and they're all, you know, they're all similar to each other. And that's what, yeah, that's what diversity leftism is trying to remove from us. And what are we trying to do here? Trying to survive. I just wanted to point out that's very, very purgatorial, right? Sal vive, survive, save the life. <laughs> Why do you wear the horns? You let a child command you because the kid Loki appears to be in charge. And we find out that the kid Loki killed Thor. That's fun. And they make it to their base which is a underground kingdom, underworld, purgatory, very much a Hades underworld thing. I mean, they go into this escape hatch and they're going underground. Oh, got a yeah, bad echo there, Gabe. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's totally a wheel, right? The, the escape hatch itself is a, is a wheel of fortune. Good point. I, I missed that one. I mean, it's so... It's so prevalent in this episode. I mean, I guess the wheel and circles are kind of common thing, but you see it a lot. It's just really in here a lot. I totally didn't catch that. That was also a wheel. As the camera pans down into their underworld, you see a lot of prison trays, like lunch trays that you'd see in prisons or public schools. You know, same thing. <laughs> no difference. And that's also purgatory is like prison for souls. You go there until your time is up. Your punishment is over. So that is a, a perfect illustration there. And as it pans down some more. And what do we got? We got the homunculus. <laughs> this is what they call frog Thor in the comics, a.k.a. Throg. It's a homunculus because it's in a jar. It's the jar is labeled T365. Well, I think we're looking at Abraxas here. Abraxas has a lot to do with 365 with, the, you know, we could go into that too much, but I'll just say one thing. One interesting thing is there's a acrostic out of the letters of Abraxas that amounts to 365 in numerical value, uh, composed of four Hebrew and three Greek words, all written with Greek characters. Ab, Ben, Roach, Hakados, Soteria. Apo, uh, or Helu. Basically, it means Father, Son, Spirit, Holy, Salvation from the Cross. That's encoded in Abraxas. The cross in this being the T on the label. Young equates the homunculus with the Philosopher's Stone and the inner person or the higher self that is in parallel with Christ. So, in this, lo in this metaphor, we're in Loki's inner world. And his unconscious, where all of the shadow identities, the demonic oppressed identities that he's had over his time live. And the Thor homunculus is like the heroic or the Christ version of himself. You know, he sees Thor as the hero. Nice. <laughs> and I put I put the hermit card on here because I think that this is the Christ in a jar on the hermit card for sure. And really? the sperm is very homunculus-esque. Also, the underworld element of the hermit card is clear. There's the hey, there's the uh, 
the egg with the serpent wrapped around it. This is the other card that I think has a lot to do with this episode. And Cerberus is another reason I think that Elias being a guard dog. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, you're totally right. This is so. Uh, in my read, the Wheel of Fortune card has a great deal to do with uh, Centaurus and the Lupus constellation in general, but uh, which is huge. The entire arc of going through the fall of the fall equinox, um, which is right next to the Virgo, which is this card here, and Buotes as well. Um, but uh, the frog, for me, uh, it will ring true to... Aristophanes play uh, the frogs, um, which is a play about Dionysus going into the underworld during a crisis during the fall or the collapse. And he wants to interview uh, a tragedian because he needs a new social engineering mind control spell. And he wants to get the best way to control people's minds. So he's going to go down and find the best tragedian. I think it's Euripides. I forget their names. Um, but when he gets down there, he actually finds this uh, the other tragedian uh, and he makes them do a performance competition. And the philosophy that comes out between the two different mentalities is telling us of the full spectrum dominance of social engineering that far back. And so everybody should get past all the gay shit and the silliness of the frogs and just just get it in your repertoire. Because they're going, they're counting on you to be afraid of the gay shit, so that you won't find the penetrative social engineering value of the of the production, and that is that they are used to this climate of of our of civic design, and when we sway to the left, then they're going to play a tragedy this in this chord, and when we sway to the right, they're going to play their tragedy to a different chord, and those two tragedians down in Hades who got interviewed gave you the fucking keys to the death star if you can get in there and read aristophanes the frogs it is such a gem and a treasure uh but you do you gotta you gotta persevere through some pretty serious gay shit uh it's worth it though uh so yeah when they're going underground and i'm seeing frogs that's actually dionysus he goes past a group of frogs and they serenade him and they're actually saying like cree cree crow crow cruz cruz Something, some kind of weird frog call that is probably even cooler in Greek and then in German again. But I find that correspondent to this Thor who's like grunting. He's like, urgh, urgh, and he's trapped inside. And so it was very much like Dionysus passing through the frogs in that play, uh, which plays into Keck, which plays into the Capitol riots, which plays into what happened on January 6th. But, uh, and the man who made the DeLorean. Mr. DeLorean himself, his birthday, January 6th. All right. Yeah, yeah. The keck part, the frog deity and the association with the alt-right, just like the Othala rune is associated with the alt-right. So if they're the alt-right, they're they're the underground. They're being driven underground. They're being kept in a jar or something like that. When we see the... I got to get on your level with all the tragedians and... Greek philosophers, man, you get so much out of that. I, I mean, that's it's good that we have you for that. I'll just say that we appreciate that. Also, yeah. I need to take a moment and do a commercial because Kyle caught me spritzing with my rose hydrosol here. <laughs> <laughs> he caught me in the chat. He saw me doing it. So uh, great time to remind everybody that if you go on over to Tip Canoe Herbs and use the coupon code Interverse, you can get yourself these 
fabulous, refreshing hydrosols that will perk you right up or protect you or all the different other ways that uh, plant medicines can work for you. Really, there's so much there. Uh, I couldn't speak highly of it enough. (laughs) Go check it out. You know, and while we're doing plugs, how about how about we just take a really quick little look? This is a commercial commercial break. Ways to support the show. There's some new stuff on the uh, innerversemerch.com. Thanks to my beautiful partner in life and uh, kind of business partner now, <laughs> Jenny G. So she's made some awesome new stuff like these vibrant. I mean, she's Canadian, so she needed the hat with the pom pom to be on the store. <laughs> Gotta have that. Comes in black. Uh, apparently pink she's running this show now so (laughs) some of this i have i'm not even necessarily sure all the color options but you know she likes the subtle so if you guys like the subtle there's the small logo hoodies like small logo t-shirts there's a lot to choose from on here there's the more crazy stuff like this hoodie you see me wear a lot very very comfortable super awesome hoodie and puzzles the puzzles are really fun my mom was doing the puzzles the other day she absolutely loves them but all all of these things you know they all support the show if you get them yeah this is my art on a puzzle that's so cool they're really fun they're worth it they're better than any puzzle you can get at the store i mean look at the the detail on this it would make for a pretty gnarly puzzle experience you gotta admit it's a fun one that's glorious. I think that's my favorite item right there. That's awesome. There's also this pu- as a puzzle. I think this is a sticker on the store here, but there's a puzzle version of this as well. Yeah. So interversemerch.com will yeah. get you to this store where you can get all these cool things. I mean, there's a backpack of it. <laughs> there's so many things out of here. It's really fun. So commercial over. Oh, Kyle scratches my back too. Thanks for the super chat, buddy. Appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. So going back to your programming here, we didn't lose anybody on the commercial. That's good. As you descend into their lair, their underground world, you see that they're actually housed in a bowling alley. I thought to myself, what could the symbolism of the bowling alley be? There's actually quite a lot there, but first of all, what is, purgatory how do you get out of purgatory penance you got to be penitent wow 10 pins in bowling there's our x's that's awesome (laughs) strike you get an x yeah the wheel card exactly dude and you nailed it you also the thing about purgatory is you keep you keep doing the same thing over and over until you perfect it or at least there's sometimes a thought of that in some traditions where a person's reliving a moment until they finally can like change their mind or get over it. There's also all this Christmas decor, which the death and rebirth of the sun is Christmas. Santa is Kronos. We know that. There's also a funny thing that I found out that in the X-Men you know how they have that Professor X has that helmet and he can detect mutants with Cerebro, Cerebrus, Cerebro. <laughs> There's a, a, an X-Man comic where they detect the most powerful mutant, Omega level mutant that they've ever seen. And it turns out it was Santa Claus. 
he had immortality and teleportation and could turn people into toys and he had all kinds of powers. <laughs> That's awesome. He was at the center of the of the search. <laughs> That's great. Yes. And the other thing about all this Christmas iconography, where does Santa Claus live? The North Pole, the center of the wheel. That's right. And things are about to get intense <laughs> right here. <laughs> That's even part of the layout. Uh, Chance, I made a graphic that I don't think I sent to you. I'm going to try to send it, and I might get zipped out and might have to come back, but I'm, um, I'll be BRB. Okay, try not to get zipped out. I'd rather you just stay here. Makes me feel more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, so you send me that graphic, and I'll continue a little bit on the bowling weave. So one of the things about bowling is the... Tetractus is the shape that the bowling pins are arranged in. It is four rows, tetra, like four. Four is Hermes' number, a.k.a. Loki. So the tetractus, this, this symbol, this shape. In the tetractus, the first four numbers symbolize the musica universalis, the universal music, music of the spheres, and it represents the cosmos. So the first pin is the monad, unity. Then the row of two pins, the dyad, which is power. The triad is harmony. The tetrad is cosmos. The four rows, one, two, three, four, add up to ten, which was a unity of the higher order, the decad. The tetractus also symbolizes the four classical elements. It represents the organization of space. The first row represents zero dimensions, a point. The second row is a line. Third row is a plane. The fourth row is a three dimensions tetrahedron. Uh, the Pythagoreans actually had like a prayer addressed to the tetrad or the tetractus, where they said, bless us, divine number, thou who, who generated gods and men. O holy, holy Tetractus, thou that containest the root and source of the eternally flowing creation, for the divine number begins with a profound, pure unity until it comes to the holy four. Then it begets the mother of all, the all-comprising, all-bounding, the firstborn, the never-swerving. <laughs> Think about your bowling. You know, you don't want to swerve to go into the gutter. The never-tiring, holy ten, the key holder of all. Say ten. At Santa. <laughs> <laughs> As a portion of the secret religion, initiates were required to swear a secret oath by the Tetractus. They then served as novices, which required them to observe silence for a period of five years. So the Tetractus, I could go on and on, but the Tetractus in the Pythagorean tradition is it contains like the whole the whole philosophy is symbolized in this one thing, pretty much, including the Pythagorean musical system, the ratios, the perfect fourth, the perfect fifth, the octave. All of that is also in here. <laughs> Bowl, <laughs> bowling, bailing. Good stuff, Dylan. So there's I'll look up yours now, but, you know, just in the shape of the bowling pins, there's a ton going on. And, and I think it's no no surprise that the Tetractus and the Holy Ten, you know, Satan and the anagram of Satan is Santa. And we have all this Christmas iconography. To me, no surprise. <laughs> Gabe's, Gabe, your, your video is frozen and your face is just frozen in a state of perpetual wonder. And I'm fine <laughs> with that. <laughs> That's okay. 
<laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good deal. That's funny. But uh, this uh, this scene is um, it's funny. It's kind of like implying the dude also, uh, and and there uh, there's some existentialism in, intrinsic to the dude uh, that does come up in the conversation. But so this was I almost didn't catch this chance, and I'm so glad that I did. This scene is a symposium. They are lounging around uh, discussing their uh, individual, you know, their individual perspectives, you know, what they what they have in common, what they have that is different. Uh, They're all reclining indoors. They're in the privacy. They're in the sub Sobek con shoes. Look, he's right by the shoes. Sobek is right by the shoes, (laughs) the subconscious realm. Okay, Um, so they're all lounging and they all get a turn to do kind of a diatribe. We get to know each of their backstory in a a kind of cool, unique way. And then uh, and then our Loki, the main Loki, he stands up and he gives the best eulogy about love. He is Socrates in that moment because he invokes the spirit of Sophia. He calls forward this higher wisdom, this ideal realm, this beautific potentiality uh, that is accessible only through the process of the initiate. Um, and he's ref- and Socrates is referring to uh, Diotima Monatea in that scene. And so what's fascinating in the symposium is that it takes the last guy to actually uh, in bring forward the female energy secondhand. So the one who really knocks it out of the park is a woman who's not even really there. It's an idea of a woman. And he describes what this idea of a woman taught him. Uh, and it wins all of it wins the day. It's the best of the seven speakers uh, thus far. And that's what Loki does. He's like, she was on our side. She's going to take down the TVA. She, and he gives us motivational speech. And they all look at each other. And then they and they all laugh and mock him, which is Aristophanes, the, uh, the comedian of the symposium. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's actually, he uses these events against Socrates in his trial later. Uh, so that mocking, getting the last laugh, that actually happens in the symposium by the comedian. But then after he's done trying to invoke everybody to like motivate them, he's like, screw this. And our Loki, he goes to the hatch and then the interlopers come into the room and the second Loki appears uh, and he's going to hijack the whole symposium situation. That is uh, Elcibiades the interloper who comes into the symposium and hijacks the whole scene because he's drunk. And so this other, the other Loki who comes in and tries to, uh, tries to hijack the whole situation is literally playing out the aspect of Elcibiades uh, as he, as he intercedes. And then they, and then it becomes a a raucous, they get in a a huge fight, but I just want to say something that I've learned about this symposium, about this, this Diotima Monatea, this goddess who knows this highest ideal of this beautific potential. And you just trust me, because if you get initiated, I can show you the path, all of these things. This is Sophia wisdom. But what is fascinating is I just learned recently that, um, uh, not Stalin, who's the other uh, Russian 
uh, Lennon. Lennon. Thank you. Lennon. He brought Sophia back into the Russian culture just so he could dangle a carrot over the revolutionaries. Sophia is this torch, this lighthouse, this high ideal, this glimmer of hope, extremely far off after a, a, an unthinkable amount of suffering that you might get if you follow all the rules and do what you're told. That's what Sophia is. She's this overly high ideal. And it's used to try to spark up revolution and get people to like go to war. And what's so funny is that the countermeasure to that in this scene is just humor. You know, the guys just laugh at him. They're like, whatever. Yeah, right. Perfect woman. Sure. There's a perfect woman out there. Guys, do you hear this guy? He says there's a perfect woman out there. Blah, and they all just fall back in their couch. And then they get and then they get jacked. Another better alpha Loki, uh, an Elcibiades comes and supplants them all, uh, brings chaos into the room. So I just wanted to share that. But can you zoom into the central character in the symposium who has the cup in their hand? It's the exact same shape of cup that they're drinking from. Look at the shadow out of the door of this symposium painting. Look at that shadow on the horizon. What do you see? Can you zoom? That's Eliath, man. There's fucking Eliath outside. In this painting, this is the fall of Rome being foreshadowed in the painting. Oliath was born when this painting was made, and the idea of it is reanimated in this film. That's fucking Oliath shadow storming in the background. And there's a lot more to it, like the actual... Um, this is freaking me out, dude. The structure. Look at the structure on the background. That little uh, stone structure that's outside, you see that um, the negative square space behind his hand on the on the landscape in the out the window, that structure, they're about to have a camping scene where they cook one of the jaybirds in this broken down structure. It is designed after this thing out the window right here. They're literally in the painting, bro. <laughs> Isn't that fun? All I could say is, whoa. Yeah. Like, same with Rachel. Rachel says, whoa. I say, yeah. whoa. Eliath being out there is freaky, dude. I got a few more things, man. This is where they introduce the child. Okay. So the symposium rolls out. I'm going to be, I'm, if you haven't followed me on the Slick Dissonant channel, this might go over some heads. But in the beginning of the symposium, they talk about love. The second speaker is the lawyer, and he brings up pederasty. And he says that there is such thing as love between adults and children. And, the, and he even says that the children, the, the young boys should at least have fur on their face. They should at least have a beard. So he does draw this line in the sand anatomically. He doesn't say an age. He just says they should at least have fuzz on their face. So it is. It's relations with young youth. This is very controversial. A lot of people, I got uncomfortable with it. But if you get through the mysteries, there's a lot more there. For one, it told me about the fact that a lawyer is a pederastic relationship. That when you take on a lawyer, you become the, the, the king child, the child king, the youthful, irresponsible, not fully informed, but super powerful beyond your own imagining. And it takes a lawyer to keep you tempered. So that you don't go uh, suing the shit out of everybody. So to some degree, these metaphors need to be extreme and psychically jarring because, for one, it gives them staying power. The controversy keeps them on the shelf longer. 
But just keep now bear with me, because in the beginning, it, the, the narrative is about uh, elderly attracted to a youthful person. Well, there's a mystery that unpacks as you go through the symposium, because at the end of the symposium, it's actually the youthful Alcibiades who's attracted to the elder Socrates. And so the roles become reversed where the younger is now pursuing the elder. And so the reason why all of this is fascinating is because all of those dynamics are in this scene. They're, they still are encapsulating that reversal of the youth, the elder seeking the youth and the youth seeking the elder getting flipped. It actually happens in the plot line of this of this episode. So somehow they've encapsulated uh, more of the symposium than I could rant for another hour about is all boiled down into this episode here. Um, and then I'll say one last thing. In some paintings, they have little babies running around with their baby butts in the, in the background. And in other paintings, they've excluded the babies from the, from the scenery. Um, and so we can see how having children in underground bunkers, there's a God King in an underground bunker here. There's something going on with the provocativeness of um, the elders seeking the youth and the youth seeking the elders. And I'll just kind of leave it at that because that theme is uh, it's threaded into the background, but it's not explicit. It's implied. Yeah, I, I this is why I need you, man, because I, I wasn't I didn't even make the connection to Symposium, but you could go on and on. Probably <laughs> there's probably more to it than that. I try not to. Uh, could you go to the top? I'll say one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm this this is uh, coming up in the in the plot. But I just want to mention uh, 173 is a prime number. It is the 40th prime number. Um, uh, Virgo is the only uh, station of the Zodiac that is a full 40 degrees. The four is the Kabbalistic reduction down to the 10, of course. The 40th prime minister right now is that psycho hose beast down in um, New Zealand. That host beast in New Zealand is their 40th prime minister. That came up in my research. But also, this boat is on the uh, the hermit card. This is the uh, Argo. Argo Navis is on the hermit card. Hermit card is number nine. This episode has much to do, do with number nine. And who is the ninth prime minister in Israel? Bibi Netanyahu. Bibi Netanyahu was depicted on the uh, Economist poster in the hang glider collision scene with the Hamas hang glider. Guess what? If you've been on the Slick Disney channel, the Hamas hang glider and uh, the BB Netten hang gliders are both the wheel card colliding with the sun card, uh, which are both the wrath, the two uh, cards that correspond to wrath station number one, kicking off world war, whatever. Uh, they literally took all the aspects of the wheel card and the sun card and ran them into a psychological false flag uh, that's going to spark off all this, all the hummus. <laughs> hummus. <laughs> Hummusgenous. Homogenous. <laughs> you also, you brought up how Socrates talks about the, what's her name? Diotima, right? Diotima? Yep. Yes. So when you do a little word surgery with that name you get you could get metis dio metis out of it if you turn tima into like meta 
Meti. Yeah. Yes, and yes. that's, that would mean God, wisdom God. That's same as Sophia. Metis is an interesting figure to bring into the conversation too, because what's the story about Metis Greek or the Greek story is that Zeus tries to like swallow her or did swallow her. And it's pretty much the, the, the same moment as when Kronos swallows Zeus or tries to swallow Zeus, swallows his children. That's Zeus does that as well. So we see in this episode, there's a lot of attempted swallowing by <laughs> a Typhon figure. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It, um, and Metis is the, that's the uh, shapeshifter, right? That's like the entity of shapeshifting, which will come up in the next episode. We'll get into like uh, whatever smart matter. <laughs> I'm going to step out and come back, see if my camera comes in. Cool. That sounds good. I'll push on. So we've got continuing on in the plot before the other Lokis pop in and we'll get to that. There's this cut back to Sylvie and Renslayer and Renslayer still spinning her bullshit. Right. And there's this little <laughs> you have the uh, little robot lady. What's her name? Miss Minutes. And she's looking for files that pertain to the secrets and the mysteries that are needed about the end of time. So she's spinning these files like a wheel and she's just spinning, 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 spinning. And she herself is a wheel. There's also this thing. So they're talking about how what if the void isn't the end? What if there's something beyond the void? In Kabbalah, there is a void between the top of the tree of life and the absolute going through the void to get to the God above God or to get to the true creator above the Demiurge seems to be kind of the idea Kabbalistically that's encoded with this whole show and this whole episode. And (laughs) she's like, find if we find Loki, we'll find the man behind the curtain, whoever created the TVA behind the curtain, aside from being a reference to (laughs) the wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain is also the holy of holies, right? There's a curtain separating the inner sanctuary in the tabernacle. We've already, the tabernacles already come up in previous episodes. So if you didn't catch that, go back to it. All these things, all these episodes tied together in ways that just, there's too much for us to cover all our tracks second time. But then Renslayer uh, or Sylvie you know, feels threatened. So she runs off and jumps in to the, uh, behind the curtain of the judge's bench and Renslayer is offering, I'll put you in a time loop, something nice. You can live out your days in a good memory. That's again, back to that purgatory idea that the soul might relive a specific moment eternally in purgatory. But that's also like, that's what it, that's what happens with stuck fragments of your self energy in your biofield. They're caught in like a trauma time loop. It is that it is almost purgatorial when you do things that like soul retrieval or biofield tuning, things that work in that way to bring fragments of self energy back together. You're sort of saving (laughs) souls from purgatory in a sense, because that the stuck energy is like, okay, if it's severe enough, it's basically another mind it's got it's it's a part of your mind that's separated off and continues to exist as its own individual identity like i did a tuning for a lady who 
Uh, she had this left side root chakra energy that was tied up in the uh, the left side of the root chakra. The front is like where you will not act. So sometimes it's like laziness. Sometimes it's shyness. But for this girl or this woman, her her experience as a child was going to a a private school that was like a rich school and a Catholic school, but as a poor kid. So all the other kids are dressed up to the nines and she's wearing like thrift store clothes. So she had this version of herself that was very stuck at that time, at that age of being like eight or nine. And the, uh, and that, that little girl version of herself was just repeating the same thing. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be poor. I'm going to be rich. And so she had this inhibition that she didn't realize until we found it in the biofield where she was inhibited from doing behaviors that didn't generate money, AKA workaholic. (laughs) So, you know, that's the thing is like, there's like a little version of her that was following her around saying, I got to be rich. I got to be rich. I got to be rich. And so it, it's there. It's like the whispers, you know, it's the, it's the shaitan, but it's you. And so it's not a victim thing. It's, it's you rectifying the parts of yourself. That's what this purgatory idea is about. Right. You know, um, no, go to that next one. This is perfect. This moment she is embodying. Well, between this moment and where she lands, she so in this moment, she, she prunes herself. So it looks like she's doing like the Japanese seppuku, stabbing herself with the samurai sword. But yeah. this is this is the penance moment. This is her self-mortification, self-abasement, her repentance for sin. Yes. The whole thing. This is absolutely where she becomes the hermit card. This that torch that the hermit card is holding uh, it relates to a great many things, but um, uh, in my read, um, uh, not uh, Heidegger has this uh, Lektung. The Lektung is the clearing space, but it's also the lantern. It also relates to elections that clear a space. Uh, but she's on the lectern, and she's about to light up the lantern. And so she is very much embodying uh, all things Schopenhauerian right here. Uh, Schopenhauer was uh, and Goethe. back off a little bit from the uh, device. It's a little crackly when you're close. Thanks, buddy. Uh, they were both accused of harvesting suicides from their writing and their philosophy at one point in their careers. And so when I see people um, getting into this, taking their life into their own hands, that's actually part of the Schopenhauerian um, pessimist philosophy. And it's also part of the hazard of it. It's like you wouldn't want to just give somebody Schopenhauer's reading and not tell them, hey, by the way, people kill themselves from reading this guy. You know, there's some forms of philosophy that literally should have a huge warning sign and not be proliferated freely. I'm not for censorship, but I am for like fair warning notice. Well, they have cooked down all things Schopenhauerian and pessimistic about the number nine slothful Belfagor spirit. They've imbued it into the uh, hermit card in particular. It is Schopenhauer. It's also Faust. It's a million things. But for her to commit suicide with this torch, to me, is putting herself into the uh, quintessential hermit card, especially where she wakes up nested in that in that uh, bus. Uh, But yeah. I'll, I'll shut up now. 
Well, it's interesting you say that of philosophies that can cause suicide. So I'm going to skip forward. We I have a screenshot of the wine because the wine theme is very Bacchus. We know Loki's Bacchus, but we already talked about the whole symposium weave of it. So we'll move past that. Oh, right. But uh, uh, so sh- the XX. The hermit card is a Diogenes and Diogenes is in the wine bottle or in the wine barrel because we're in the harvest season. So the alcohol, of course, all things Virgo. Yeah, he's in a loop from that point to about Capricorn. Oh, and I forgot. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just have so much to throw on the table. I keep forgetting when she says I'll put you in a nice loop where you might not where you might actually enjoy it. That's Nietzschean. That's the Nietzschean eternal return. And so Nietzsche actually was, uh, had to overcome Schopenhauer. He was, he was a pessimist. He was a Schopenhauerian, but he had to overcome his own master. So this is actually a battle of philosophies going on here that uh, Renslayer is offering an eternal return where you'll just come live the same life over and over and over. And then she's like, no, fuck that. I'm going the Schopenhauer route. And she kills herself. So this is literally uh, uh Nietzschean and Schopenhauerian all in like 60 seconds of the film. So much information is conveyed here for me. Uh, So I just wanted to say that too, that the eternal loop is Nietzschean. That doesn't mean Renslayer is Nietzsche. It just means there's a a nod between these two philosophies coming together and conflicting. Well, and then the fact that Nietzsche is used is, is part of the whole constellation of like the boot boys, right? And mean Mr. Mustache. And she's got her jackbooted thugs, her Nazi soldiers coming in Great here. Point. She's very much, yeah, the Nietzsche inside of the philosophy. I feel that. Great point. But dude, did you notice Polybius showing up today? Dude, you blew my mind with this. Like, I wish I had seen this a couple of days ago. What is this all about? Let me sling. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you were just talking about Schopenhauer and philosophies that can make you kill yourself. All right. You see this Polybius is on an arcade box. It's like an, a classic arcade game. Polybius is allegedly a fictitious 1981 arcade game. The, the official line is that it's an urban legend. But when you hear all these disclaimers, urban legend, fictitious, urban legend, fictitious, but then it's got all the details as if it's a historical story with even like names named and shit. I wonder. So the quote unquote legend describes the game as part of a government-run, crowdsourced psychology experiment in Portland where the gameplay of this arcade supposedly produced intense psychoactive and addictive effects in the behave- in the player. The few publicly staged arcade machines were visited periodically by men in black for the data mining of the machines and the analyzing of the effects on people. The cameras in them, watching your eyes, your dilation of your pupils, all that, and tracking the people who played it. Yeah. And there's like they were these games were out for a month and then they disappeared. The players suffered from side effects, including seizures, amnesia, insomnia, night terrors, demonic attack, hallucinations. <laughs> the company who created this game was said to have been called Sinislokan. Sinisloskin, something like that. It's a German word. I don't pronounce German well, but it's German compound word that means sensory deprivation or sense delete. Really weird. Bro, okay. Dude, there are so many ingredients here. 
I did not know all that. I'm just learning this as you say it. I did not know all that. So the symposium is called the touchstone or the test. And it is, uh, it's dealing with these passions, these different aspects of love. Um, and I'm, I'm still working on flushing out. I think it has to do with, I think it's also hiding the furies. I think the furies are here in the symposium. I haven't flushed this out yet. I need to uh, work on my narrative around it to, to get the language. I need command over this. But for you to tell me that there's a video game being signaled that was like making people maybe play into their deadly sins, maybe fall, maybe fuel their deadly sins or trigger their deadly sin, maybe their particular flavor of sin. That is really fascinating to be infused into the symposium because the symposium is about bringing out those, those passions and those potentials. Uh, and damn, and a psychological profile that the, the, the Enneagram provides. This is a cocktail of immense proportions. Well, we, we got to talk about Polybius, the, the character, the actual person, Polybius. <laughs> I mean, if we're seeing Polybius here, it's two, it's two senses. It's not just the, is, is this Playboy Mansion? Are we looking at <laughs> Playboy Mansion right here where they're going to, they're going to soak in their vices. They're going to just like seep in the pool of vice. So <laughs> Polybius was the author of the histories. Okay, he was a historian. He's like the the next Herodotus, the Roman Herodotus in a way. Essentially, Polybius wrote the authorized official history of how Rome rose to power and how it maintained itself. So in a way, Polybius is like the father of the sacred timeline, the official story. Is this the source of the word publish? I don't know about that. I wonder if this is the source of the word publish. (laughs) Well, think about this, too. Poly by us. That's like the if you word split that, it's like saying too much or a lot. There's many of us. I am Legion. What is this game about, Polybius? It's like putting demons on people. Essentially, all the symptoms described were like demonic oppression symptoms. It's yeah. Legion shit. Yeah. Dylan's gonna replace Polybius, he says. But I need to point this out because he's the author of the histories. It's the official story. He's the guy that's held up by later authors and 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 philosophers and historians that say Polybius was the one who gave us the idea of actually checking your factual integrity before you wrote a history, that you should only chronicle the events who you're able to get firsthand accounts of people who are there and interview them. I mean, they talk about speaking of Polybius encoding the idea of too much uh, in the in the name a lot of people what they would say about polybius was you can never read it all it's too much <laughs> and and it's not the way that we're kept from truly understanding history too is that it's like oh you're just given a mountain of inconsequential details that might not even be important but the so this whole notion of the sacred timeline maintaining the sacred timeline controlling the historical narrative Polybius might be the first guy who gave us a universal history from the state or from whatever the power structure was to obscure what really happened, to cover up, a, a you know, possible genocides or wiping out of civilizations. Because what's at the beginning of Roman history is the first 300 years is pure astrotheology. When you read the legends, the so-called history of Rome, it's like that's no different than the esoteric religious doctrine. 
but yeah. on on top of that polybius why i have these these uh squares on here is that he created a cryptography tool the polybius square which was used to allow letters to be easily signaled using a numerical system so he's also a cryptography guy yeah. so you know if you're coming up with cryptography and you're giving us the official mainstream history are we sure that there's not some cryptography in that shit i right. think so yeah man yeah it, that is this is great what a gem you've discovered oh okay okay so uh, but the, it's behind this character in particular it's like in the frame with him in particular um i there there's a lot more weaving from this going on but i'll just say that from my symposium work i found the nine muses sitting in the exact order of the people seated sitting in their seats one through nine polyhymnia was the first muse of the first speaker. The first speaker is Phaedrus, but it is polyhymnia because he's a rhetorician. His muse, who he's speaking for, he's the mouthpiece of polyhymnia. So that kind of resonates a little bit because polyhymnia is a rhetorician, but she's also, she has her finger on her lips. She's often like pensive. She's thinking, but she's also reticent. She knows what not to say. Sometimes it's what you don't say that is the most important thing. So, and her name has Polly and many in her name. So she has many, many, and she is sometimes called she of many talents, the many talented one. Um, so there's a lot of cryptography in her exist in her very being. But then the next muse, number two speaker, is the the lawbringer Pausanias, and his muse is Cleo. And she has the scroll of the Theosidides history of the Peloponnesian War in her lap. So she has history and strategy uh, in a scroll, sometimes books, as her symbol. So the first one is polyhymnia, the rhetorician. The second one is the written histories. So there's something going on between like what is said and what is actually written down and getting eyewitness accounts, like you were just saying, firsthand eyewitness accounts, the first speaker is a, is the power of the spoken word. The second speaker, second seat to that is the written word. So there's a lot of lessons in that, but I'm just, we're breezing right up against aspects of the symposium in really powerful ways, because I knew all along the symposium was code rich. It's replete with code. And now you're adding more layers to that in confirmation. This is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, this one's jam-packed, man. Uh, and then this, the next thing is Loki, old Loki starts talking about the, that they're the god of outcasts. Of course, we saw the Pepe, the frog, frog Thor, the homunculus, referring to them being the alt-right. I think that that could be in the mix. Uh, they, you, you're talking about so much Greek stuff, the symposium. So why don't we also mention the idea of ostracizing somebody? The word ostracize comes from Athenians in ancient Greece, where they had this, they would uh, do this thing where you could write somebody's name on a shard of broken pottery and you put it in a container in a public place on the public square. And if they find somebody's name written in in the jar or whatever, enough copies of the name, like votes, then they get banished from the city for 10 years. And in a way, you know, there, there's a lot of Lokis in this scene. 
you know, there's a lot in this jar. So the outcast as an idea, though, that word is more referring to the caste system where somebody is rejected by their caste or they're a foreigner or something outsider. But it's about being a pariah. It's mm-hmm. possibly being exiled from your home. It's yeah, it's we'll, we'll, let's move past this unless you have thoughts on it. No, that's a good one. I love that. Uh, yeah, they uh, they would they would some at some phases in some of those cultures, not all, uh, they would both cast out the the lowest person in, in their city, and they would cast out the person who was the highest accomplisher, the over overachiever, and that is a weird thing. But that is that's just a form of full spectrum dominance where it's like, oh, don't slack off too much, but don't achieve too much, and then they could just keep you threatened no matter where you go. It's all engineering. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, this next shot, we see Kid Loki. Everyone else is drinking wine, and he's drinking high C. So I did a little digging, and this is high C, the ecto cooler. So this is yet again in this series where we see a discontinued Coke product because high C is a Coke brand. This was like an orange or tangerine flavored ghostbusters themed high c but it was they kids were drinking this it was fluorescent like neon green that doesn't sound good (laughs) i don't think that you should be drinking anything that's neon green probably ever the also i was just trying to find out more about it and there i kept finding these references to some conspiracy theory about the ecto cooler and they all reference the same website, but that website is decommissioned. So it's like there was something out there that was a conspiracy theory related to this ecto cooler that has been scrubbed from the internet. I didn't try going in the Wayback Machine archive.org. I'm curious enough that I actually might do that. But that's, yeah, that's the ecto cooler. We got Coke products coming back. The, uh, what was it? Josta that Mobius is always drinking. <laughs> so whatever that might whatever we make of that who knows but it's worth noting this is these anachronism anachronisms or whatever you say yes and they're also they lend to the nostalgia spell to a great deal you know a lot of people are, oh i remember that oh yeah me too so uh, uh it's um drawing us back to youthfulness i think it's playing into the infantilization and let's not miss the fact that he's a candy ass He's sitting on a throne of candy. <laughs> He's a candy ass. Um, but also those two candy canes, when you on the throne, when you put them side by side, they are the Aries symbol, the symbol for Aries. He's in the emperor throne. The emperor card in the Thoth deck has two rams on his shoulder, just like these horns of these deers on the on the armchair. Uh, so he's embodying both the emperor card, but also the sun card. And so um uh, I, I just see him all things with that uh, uh, Perseus in that position. And Perseus is holding Medusa in his hand. Medusa is a, a, taxo, a, a toxin infested serpent, whatever, uh, icon. So maybe there's something about that. Uh, because she's green also. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the high sea represents Medusa, the demon star of Al Gol. Maybe there's a weave there. Well, the neon green, neon green color has a lot to do with like fear programming in the media. There's also, 
<laughs> the high sea. Rachel says high sea gets you drunk like a sailor in the high seas. That was kind of my take was that high sea is liquor for kids. It gets kids all crazy. Like the way that, you know, kids party with high sea. They party with these sugar drinks. Dylan says it's got yellow number five and that can lower sperm count. And is a kid drinking it? And that could, that's an interesting point. Uh, that could be what it is. There's a lot there. We'll keep going. This is the part where you referred to where he, Loki says he's going to kill Eliath. David ain't Eliath. <laughs> and he gets laughed out of the room by the other Lokis. And he goes up and out of the underworld. Here's the escape hatch wheel that he's on or he's coming out of. It's got warning labels on it. These are written in Hindi. The labels basically say careful and something about connection with a person who could provide advancement. It's confusing. I tried to find translations of it online, but it's basically warning labels in Hindi. And he tries to go out this portal and he's blocked shadow selves, blocking the path to higher self classic purgatory. <laughs> he sees this whole gang of like Mad Max Loki's and they're coming in to steal the show. And they have their voting, their voting uh, buttons on. They're wearing their, their vote. I voted for Loki buttons. So there's a, there's a J six kind of in code to that because they're about to have an insurrection ax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a thread from, Oddly enough, the comics where that happened were, I think that the President Loki story arc, where Loki runs for president in the comics. That's awesome. Uh, was like 2016. Okay. You know, elections, one more thing, and this is just a really tentative thread, but elections. Yeah, all- he ran in 2016 because, you know, oh of course, they have to. They have to uh, satire the idea that of that election of Trump versus Hillary, that it's all a big joke. And so Loki runs for president in the comics in 2016. I thought it was 2016. That's right. Nice. We've. Wow. (laughs) So he's like, you know, this is the opposition to the right, because you would make fun of that in the comics as they did, because Disney owns the comics, you know, it's their underground guys here are the alt-right and here's the, uh, the collectivists of the left coming to get them. So 2016 is, I think the 63rd triangular number. Yeah. So uh, there's 10 of them X. Nice. Dylan Dylan counted them for us. Thanks buddy. Good point. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. So JFK was in 1963. Where were you in 63? So 63 has the trauma, you know, it's the full circle trauma spell. Um, So then 63rd triangular number is 2016. So uh, that's when they bring on the, you know, collapsing of the tower, the Trump Tower, the enthusiast, the epicure with the shadow of glutton on the scene. Oh, this is a really good weave. Thank you. Lionhearted Ripple Maker. Good name of name de jour. Uh, Aurora Borealis is illuminated light, bright green, a green high sea in the sky. It's um, the northern sky, the high sea, the northern sky. He's sitting on the throne throne of the North Pole. That's awesome. it. She's she's got it. That's There's a the, nail in it, and he's sucking on the straw. So the straw is like the the North Pole. That's great. Glory, glory. That's it. 
I love the audience. You guys are awesome. <laughs> you add so much to this. Appreciate you guys. Okay. So then we cut to Sylvie. She's arrived on a bus. The word bus comes from omnibus, a volume containing several items previously published separately, which is basically what a collection of Loki's is. It's an omnibus. <laughs> She's on the omnibus and she gets out. She's smoke monster comes for her. She raises her palm, the upraised palm. That's cough. Remember equals 20, but also as she's raising her palm, she touches the smoke monster Eliath, and she grasps when she touches it, she grabs the smoke and she penetrates its mind. So that's, you know, go, oops, going back to the, one of the meanings of cough has to do with grasping, right? With the, how the hand can grasp things, but it's also the the closed fist or the grasp grasping hand, the hand of a man closed in the act of grasping is taking possession to grasp with the mind is to comprehend. And what we really comprehend is ours to control and use. So this is her grasping and comprehending at the same time, grasping with her hand and comprehending. So like the dual meaning of cough is laid up in this moment where she has a flash, a prophetic vision, which is what this word, Chet uh, Zion Hey Chaza, which also equals 20, same as the letter Kaf. It means a vision or a prophecy. So she's having bo both the grasping and the vision and the prophecy, all things relating to <laughs> all things relating to Kaf. And why does that pertain to the fortune card? It's it's because if you know the cycle, if you know the acceptable year of our Lord, you can prophesy. Aren't all the prophecies in the Bible basically astrotheology, which means the you you can make the prophecy because you know that spring's coming after winter. <laughs> it's, it's how it is. So prophecy and the wheel go hand in hand. The only way you can truly prophesy is if you know the whole cycle. So all of that is laid up in the wheel card and the cough. And here she is perfectly illustrating it. I mean, this moment is one of those moments where I'm like, I'm sure we're right about this shit, about this fortune card pertaining to this episode. I'm positive about it. There's so many confirmations and this is a huge confirmation. The grasping with the mind and with the hand simultaneously while prophesying. There it is. And then she's about to get eat up by that monster. And then Mobius shows up. And what's on Mobius's chariot? You mentioned he's the chariot card. Chariot is seven. We, we call them a seven in the Enneagram. There's so many reasons to think he's a seven. He's an Enneagram uh, seven. And then there it is. He's driving the car with a slice of pie on top, a piece of pie. The we know towel. Mobius equals 22. And if you divide 22 by seven, you get 3.14. That's pie. Seven equals 22 also. So Mobius yep. and, and seven are in so many ways synchronized. And if we weren't sure about that, here he is with a slice of pie on his car in season two, he's eating pie all the time. It's, it's a thing. It's he's the pie thing. guy. So, yeah. So he, um, he's, uh, there's the tower of pizza, right? It's leaning, it's fling, it's flinging in both directions. It's a tower and it's pizza and he's in a chariot to all the aspects of the chariot card and the tower card you could almost say he's like seven seven he's like double these double sevens uh in this in this scene 
so much confirmation. And then, you know, I went to, uh, back on the cough with her gaining apprehension and prophesying. If you look really close on the Thoth deck fortune card, there is a very subtle hand at the base of the wheel. Um, and so that is this moment when she's grabbing on to Elias. You're totally right. She is literally embodying that little disembodied hand that is very subtly on the wheel on the fortune card from the Thoth deck. So you're, you've nailed it. You totally caught that, that detail that most people don't even see on the card itself. As Owen Wilson might say, wow, <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow, wow. He says that every, everything he said, he says that many times. Machine, I can't believe they knowingly encode all this. I, I get you, man. But look, what, what happens next? Sylvie just arrived on the scene. And what do we see? It's the Sphinx. On the fortune card is the Sphinx. Sylvie is the Sphinx character of that trinity on the fortune card. So, I mean, I don't want to believe that they encode all this stuff and they know all this stuff. But here it is. Unless it's demons doing it through them. I don't know. Let, I want to weave on that. That is an important question. I think we should. I think we talk. We talk about this to some degree every time, but I think we get better at talking about it every time too. And that is that this is an intact, complete system. And let's say there was a broken lineage, and like uh, we all got wiped off the face of the earth, and the the bumblebees came and replaced us. Right? The bumblebees would pick up this system and start using it, and it would work. And it would not be because the bumblebees figured it out. It's because the system is whole. It's a holistic system. It's self-referential. It's hermetically sealed. It doesn't go outside of itself. And so it makes, so what happens here is we, the tarot cards and these symbols are like a room full of inflatable balloons. And anybody with the right training can come into this room and start putting these balloons together and they will make all kinds of magical shapes to the mind. And those magical shapes will have mathematical consistency because they're based on a framework and a structure. So we're just picking up on it as the consumers of the art. And it makes the people who are making the art look like they're genius. But in fact, it's nothing more than being incredibly sophisticated at being misunderstood. Was that a good summary? I think it is a good summary that there's what makes it. Hmm. What makes it magical is that it's there in nature, regardless of whether you believe in it or know about it. And human beings are nature. So human beings are going to express as portals through for the mind and imagination of the divine. That when we connect to our creativity, our third eye, which is the portal to the supreme being and our higher self, where the, the truth will come through. And the truth is, what is the truth? It's the thing that is consistent it's the pattern so this pattern exists and we're just pointing out the pattern i don't know if these people put the pattern in on purpose or not maybe some of it they did maybe some of them they didn't but the point is it's there even in stuff where definitely the person didn't know that what, what it was and, and another thing is when you go and you look up like breakdowns on these films you're getting like barely even pg rating uh penetration on the symbols Barely PG. I think that's that's being generous to say that you're getting like any kind of level of penetration from them from what you look up for, for the most part. And what's fascinating is when you take it to a deeper level, when you get past that PG, we're the deep end. You're on the deep end of the pool, and there's more consistency on the deep end than what those PG schmucks were trying to push off. 
That's what's fascinating to me. And I do agree. I, I'm That's why the, the more of these we do, the longer it takes me to prepare an episode and the longer the episodes get, because I'm yeah. like, it just, the, the more, you know, the more you see, the more it connects and it, the, it just spirals out of control. It's like, you got to break down every fucking shot, <laughs> but, it, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I'm not, I'm, I love my job. I'm glad this is my job, but let's push on. Let's push yeah. on, dude. Cause we could talk about this a lot. Okay. Here's another word that equals 20. Achva, 20 as in Kaf, the fortune card. It's Aleph, Chet, Vav, Hey, Achva means brotherhood or fraternity. And here is obviously a fraternity or a brotherhood. And I mean, that's definitely a theme of this episode. There's the smaller fraternity of the, the good Lokis. And then there's this group of miscreant Lokis here. Here they're, you know, you've sold this out to the wolves. The black, black Loki betrayed them. Big surprise. And the president Loki says, we prefer snakes to wolves. Like all the Lokis are constantly betraying each other. So they all betray each other too. big surprise. But the, uh, the statement of we prefer snakes to wolves is interesting to me. The earliest Christians were called the Ophites or the Ophiani, the brotherhood of the snake. And Ooh, Dylan, take notes on cyberpunk. Okay. Good note. I learned about the Ophites or the Ophiani from Dylan's spirit world books. Go pick them up or check out the audiobooks I've narrated. Links in the show notes, Spirit World. But you see these serpentine vines all over. So I think there's a good reason to believe they're the, these are the Ophiani or the Ophites. But I'm going to go through a few slides to get this explained. Here's the hermit card again. And here's Serapis, the serpent wrapping around him on the right with the zodiac signs that's the mobius strip serapis is jesus and here's serapis in the middle where he's hades or pluto but this is definitely serapis he's got the he's got the cerebrus dog guardian just like on the hermit card here so here you see the symbolism of mobius and of hades and of jesus all laid up in this serapis god who is like a syncretic God. This, this is the precursor to Christianity before it got uh, heavily occulted into what people get in their churches. Eliath, the smoke monster is the Cerberus of Serapis in this episode of the show. And then, okay. So the, the letter on the hermit card is Yod, the hand, which means hand and the hand gets bit off. <laughs> But wait, there's more. Back to Hebrew gematria, Z-O-B, Zion, Aleph, Bet, is te equals 10, and it means to be yellow or to be a wolf. So here's him getting his hand bit off. And would you believe it? I even found an old-ass, super-ancient statue of Serapis raising his hand with his hand being with his hand removed. I think that's probably just damage to the statue, but it's funny anyway. I don't know, though. Maybe it was made that way because there's gods that have their hands uh, bit off like like Tyr. Tyr has his right hand bit off by a wolf. And remember, we're comparing wolves and snakes here. There's also with that comparison, you should think of Seranus, who is the wolf underworld Hades type god of the Etruscans. So I think maybe before the brotherhood of the snake, it was the brotherhood of the wolf. And what were these priests of Seranus about? These wolf priests, they wore wolf skins and everything, and they lived out in the woods. And they had this rule where they wouldn't even 
they they wouldn't subsist by honest means. We'll say that they were like the Mad Max types. They were hunting and and jacking people, stealing their shit like wolf packs. The priest of Saranus. He's Hades. He's the he's a precursor to Hades, which means he's Serapis as well. So all of that is in the mix. But then there just happens to be a word that in Hebrew that means wolf that is equal to ten, like Yod, the hand, and the hermit card. So that's kind of a lot that I just threw at you, but suffice to say, when Christianity, where it comes from, is Serapis and the Ophites. Oph means serpent. And what what's the phonetic we're talking about a lot? The letter Kof. It's k Oph snake. It's in there. That's yeah, yeah. it's all there. Yeah. You know, uh all through all through Virgo into Libra and almost to Scorpio is the Hydra is the, the is the major snake. Hydra is actually the same as um Graham. Uh the, oh ah, that's a whole weave in and of itself. The the slaying of the Hydra is an anagram for learn enneagram uh from uh Hercules's adventures, but hold on. Okay, so we got the Hydra is the snake, but I just want to mention Canis Venetici is two dogs on a leash that are attached to Boothes right there in Virgo, and then the two dogs are on leashes. They're running away from against the grain of the zodiac. They're running away from a wolf that is right in front of them. So it's almost like uh, they're afraid of the wolf because they're pulling on their leash to go the opposite direction from the wolf. But they're all within 30 degrees, maybe even less of each other. So the two dogs, Canis Venetici and the wolf, fuse together in this section of the sky to become essentially uh, the uh, Cerberus, the three-headed dog of the hermit card there. Thank you for bringing astrotheology into it, because that's always relevant now loki old loki gets them out through a magic doorway <laughs> and the we we brought up before how the gemini character is the god of doors right and here we go going through a doorway and also after that talk with david matheson we know that the ophiuchus character back to the ophi the ophites they also represent a door the the words their wisdom characters their words related to wisdom also pertain to gates like pal pule palace etc so they're going through going through this gate aka ophiuchus on the sky clock which means they're transcending the animals because he's saying damn it animals animals he's calling the other loki's animals that's the 12 that's the zodiac they're leaving behind the animals going through the gate of Ophiuchus and leaving behind the old identities who are in a big wacky melee. And now they're on the path to higher self, which is absolutely what's happening in this episode. I think that's why they're calling them animals because they're leaving behind the Zodiac. <laughs> the you know, I had a, I had a realization after listening to Mario Garza on the crow episode recently, his most recent, if you subtract the Libra is a machine and you subtract Aquarius is a man. It's the zoo deace. There's 10 animals left. It's the zoo deace. The zoo deace. Deace is the, as in deace, 10. It's the 10 animals in the zoo because you take the man and the machine out of the 12. Isn't that fun? 
That makes tons of sense. I'm I'm into that. Uh, the old, or there's also a thing the kid Loki says when one of us tries to fix themselves, they're sent here to die. <laughs> That's a bummer. But they are, you know, I think this was a good point to bring up the Kenaz rune. It's on both old Loki and kid Loki, the two that go with uh, main Loki. Kenaz, we talked about this last time, but it's it's called the Loki rune because it represents and it represents fire or the hearth or experience or knowledge. You could even say wisdom comes from those things. And tradition is forged in wisdom. That's a meaning of Kenaz. So it's a torch and a torch is a flame. That's Loki or Log. The Druids called it Log. Loki is Logi or Logos. All that's in there too. So he's like, um, if you notice, the the direction of the Kenaz rune is interesting where Kid Loki, his is pointed down. So he's not got experience yet. He's young. So he's got and his his wisdom or his knowledge is demonstrated to be inverted here and he wants to he wants to rule he thinks he's the king right and that's the sort of trap that all the lokis tend to fall into is wanting to be the king but the older loki he just wants he he's more he's understood the wisdom of love right like he he, he gets it and his his kinazrun is upright pointed upwards so he's got the experience he's got the fire he, you know he's the wise one and he ends up being the one that actually helps them in in a large way. The kid Loki helps too, but it's not the same. So I thought that was interesting, the in, upside right and upside down with that. And then the next screenshot here is where Mobius and Sylvie are getting to know each other. Uh, and he's saying, I, I really thought we were the good guys, but I realized now that we were the bad guys. And Sylvie says, yeah, annihilating entire realities, orphaning little girls. That's real heroic stuff. So I brought in this word DVY or Dalet Vav Yad. Also equals 20, like the cuff. And it means refers to loathsomeness, weakness, things like that. Uh, often a weakness that's brought about from sorrow or illness. And I thought... It's interesting to put in here because the very previous scene was them lamenting about their weakness or about being broken. And also Sylvie thinks that Loki's already dead. So there's some melancholy there. And specifically when she decides that she's going to go after Elias, the smoke monster and Mobius says, we're going back to the angry cloud. That's the idea of a storm cloud over your head is symbolic of sorrow, right? Melancholy. So all that's in the mix and it's wrapped up in the numerology here. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I almost saw in this scene, I almost saw them giving us some sort of planetary retrograde. The fact that he's uh he is uh the chariot and the tower, he's uh cancer essentially. She's Virgo. They've come together for the first time. That's actually really alchemically significant that they, they've come this far in the story. And this is the first time they're actually talking to each other directly. Uh, I think um, because he didn't even know she had a name. Like she, you know, he, he comes from the world where everybody is a number and then, you know, and he barely learned her name recently anyway. So she's being humanized in their 
Yeah, it's just and she's in the back seat, so she's still kind of prisoner status. She's not quite his equal, you know. Um, but the fact that they end up turning around and going back where they're running away from, that's a retrograde. That's like a ritualizing some sort of retrograde. So I don't know. I don't know what, but I just wanted to put that on people's radar. There might be a specific planet that they're that they're culminating this with. There might be a specific retrograde, a specific time in the, in the year that the, of this production that they're aiming at. But that's totally OK. Now we got to go back from cancer back towards uh, Centaurus uh, going forward again in the Zodiac. It's kind of a back to the future. I think they're they're literally embodying a back to the future with this retrograde. It's subtle, but it's there. Well, it's like kind of the moment where Loki's getting out of the Odyssean loop of just circling the winter and the fall. Not just the winter, but just the fall specifically. The You know, up to the, he never makes it to the Sagittarian uh, moment of the sun now rising again after the equinox. So he's kind of just trapped in the falling half of the, yeah, the Zodiac, very Odysseus. So at this point, yeah, they're, they're getting, he's breaking that cycle and it, it starts with Mobius breaking out of his loop and his behavior. So everybody's overcoming their, trauma-induced behavioral issues, thus getting themselves out of this purgatory. Yes. I think, I haven't sussed this out, I think I'm seeing movement on the Enneagram here. I think that's what this is. uh, A retrograde is a good idea, theoretically. I could do it on a Zodiac, but I'm looking at it with the Enneagram because the Enneagram has integrating and disintegrating, where you would... uh, uh, in under stress, you would want to go to a comfort zone, but sometimes you got to go against and go again back and face what you were running away from. I think that, the shadow. yeah, I think there's a facing the shadow uh, Enneagram and I could almost map it out because he's a seven. He's either going to lean into a five. He's going to want to go to a five and he's going to want to go away from the one because the seven and the, is the in-between of the five and the one on the, on the heptad. Oh, and she's definitely a five. And it's fascinating. Yes. In this, in this situation. Right. And then the, uh, the monster is a number one because it's the 10 card 10 reduces to the one. It's the, uh, the 10 card is the number one personality type. So that is what's going on. She's telling him, no, you're going the wrong way. Go back the other way, go towards the monster And the monster. If it's on the Enneagram, it's a reformer perfectionist with the shadow of wrath. You know, yeah, they're literally moving around on my slick distance shared learning dry erase board right here. I think that's what it is. All right. <laughs> All right. So then we see Kid Loki has got this device that helps them track where Nexus events are coming in, like things that have been pruned. This sort of a, maybe a reference to how kids are better at technology naturally something like that there's been jokes previously in the show about being a tech savvy loki so that's there and then we see oh man the uss eldridge we've talked about the eldridge in a previous episode where i thought there was definitely some similar themes or references to the philadelphia experiment and I had forgotten that you actually see the USS Eldridge that was supposedly vanished in the Philadelphia experiment. And then you see all the sailors in this scene, they just get totally wiped. 
by Eliath. So we don't have to talk about the Philadelphia experience experiment too much, but if you've got something on this, I know it's kind of a, a touchstone moment that they reveal that it's, it's a thing, you know, they, they reveal so many things that are thought to be ur- said to be urban legends and they put them in this show uh, as, and they've been, they're things that have been pruned. Yeah. So it's like, are they telling you that that's not an urban legend? It's that it had to be deleted from the historical record because it doesn't jive with what you're supposed to think. I mean, Polybius, that's, USS Eldridge, yeah. et cetera. Yes. And let's let's not forget that the deus ex machina of, of conspiracy culture is the Mandela effect. And so the the God machine, the devil machine, the Diablo ex machina is that they have been messing with these time experiments. Um, but I mentioned before that this will be the Argos Navis uh, from the, her- the Hermit card has this ship in particular on it. And of course, remember Theseus, the ship of Theseus, if you p- put take it apart and put it back together, is it the same ship? That's literally what this experiment did took it apart, put it back together again, and the humans were fused into the ship. The Eldritch Plan that was the monster from Jekyll Island was called the Eldritch Plan. The word Eldritch is the elder ones, the older rites, actually, the older ways, the old ways. And those old ways tie into all the Lovecraft bullshit, for sure. This is Cthulhu in its own right. But um, Cthulhu, it turns out, is the Chicxulubub crater, off of the Yucatan Peninsula that killed all the air quotes, dinosaurs, probably really the giants, whatever that location is, is very sacred to them. Um, But it's a trauma. It's a trauma impact point. And that's what is significant here is that all of the traumas go into the void. You want to avoid all these traumatic memories. Uh, But then one more thing, Chance, this is a great weave. I think you'll dig. Remember back when Renslayer was telling uh, Miss Minutes to get the time machine that we made that will go into the void? We call it the time ship. And she's like, yeah, let me see if I can find that time ship that we made to magically access the void. And she's spinning wheels to buy time. She's spinning. uh, She's playing with her feelings. She's playing with the files, the feelings. And she's like, you guys are fucking with me. You're not trying to help me. And she tries to, you know, flip the script. I think this is the time ship. They mentioned a time ship that could access the void earlier. This is the time ship that can access the void. And so it's almost as though they suggested some sort of vehicle that can get into the void. And now here they reveal to us now that it was the Eldritch they were talking about originally. Isn't that fascinating? That's a great weave right there. You know, speaking of the the devil card, the devil and the ship of Theseus. This is totally just a side tangent, but uh, Dylan in the chats, he brought up uh, that he started playing cyberpunk. That game's huge. I played it and finished it recently and like tried all the different endings. That game is so occult filled that the, the different endings you can achieve in that game are all uh, named. Even the achievement that unlocks is they're named after major arcana cards. So I tried them all out and the devil ending, the devil card ending, which is like a bad ending. They're all kind of bad because it's transhumanism is cyberpunk. <laughs> all the story of the transhuman future, the the devil card ending you like you have to get your you have to get like surgery to fix your character's psyche and 
your brain has to have neurons reconstructed and all this. And you have to sell out to this corporation to allow them to try to fix you, yada, yada. And there's this moment where the doctor, who's also like your tormentor, and you're going through all these weird psychological tests, the doctor is like t- telling herself a note to self. And she's she's like, note, the ship of Theseus. You know, if we we've replaced all your body parts with cybernetic uh implants and we've reconstructed your entire brain and uninstalled your mind and reinstalled it back in are you know are you the same being and that's that's the question of i think that's the question of the like the the higher self and the supreme being and the the reincarnation cycle and the wheel because in a sense the divine spark that animates all of us is the same the higher self, the the oversoul is the same thing incarnating into infinite beings. And the bodies are biologically the same, same general anatomy and parts, right? So you're building a new ship out of the same, you're, you're, you're replacing all the parts of the ship. You're uninstalling the mind or the psyche and reinstalling it. The, the ship of Theseus is the reincarnation cycle. You get where I'm going with that? Yeah, man. Yeah. It's fascinating and that it's such a, it's such a cornerstone. It's such a keystone. We, it's something we need, you know, it needs to always be addressed over and over again because it, it fits into so many aspects of, of our experience here. It's so great. Okay. Tangent aside. <laughs> oh, oh, you know what? I had a, th- I had a thought uh, today about, remember the Jason and the Argonauts, right? J A S O N is uh, July, August, September. October, November, J-A-S win. Wouldn't it be cool, Chance, if that's actually, that is actually encoding the ideal season for transportation? If there's actually like the time of year to catch the current to go from east to west or for whatever, from one place to another, I don't know, uh, on, a, on a pilgrimage, on a great voyage, wouldn't it be cool if the J-A-S-O-N was actually riding the currents so that you could, um, yeah, so you could navigate. I think that would be really fun to uh, suss out. Okay, I'm going to jump on. the. There's a reference here to the guard dog of Eliath. Just wanted to point out that that phrase is specifically used. That's your Cerberus character. You know, I got one. I got one right here with this picture while we're on it. That breastplate she has on is uh, is the same breastplate uh, it's it's in other cultures, many other places, but the place that I'm spotting it right now, uh, f- at first, when I first saw her, this is the same breastplate that Tent Squatawa, Chief Tent Squatawa from uh, the Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, Chief Tippecanoe's brother was the shaman who had put, a, he had, was supposed to put a protective curse on the, on the, uh, on the soldiers who raided the, the tip of canoe, they lost, they came back and they were like, what about that blessing you gave us? You're supposed to give us this defensive spell. And he's like, yeah, well, my wife, she kind of messed up the, the spell. Why don't you guys go back and start and start another fight? And they're like, bro, we all, we lost soldiers out there. Well, he's wearing this, this breastplate. This is a breastplate of a high priest. I, I believe intense squad, put the 20 year curse on all the presidents. And so this 
this breastplate she's wearing is is ringing a bell for me in a powerful way because Tenskwanawa is wearing it in his only self-portrait. His name means open door, the open door, uh, T-O-D, the open door, that's tribe of Dan, T-O-D. The open door. He's a tribe of Dan encode here. This is also the exact same breastplate that Napoleon is wearing. Napoleon is wearing this breastplate of a priest. And I think it means he has command over the uh, the moon cycles, particularly the lunar standstill. Loon RST and still cycles are commanded by those who wear this mark on their chest. Uh, so if you guys go watch Napoleon, understand he is wearing the same insignia that Chief uh, Tenskwatawa was wearing when he put the 20-year curse on the president. I think Napoleon... Yeah, we'll be right back. Keep keep going. Okay, You're doing great. Okay. I just went and watched Napoleon last night, so I could weave for a minute here. I just went and watched that horrible, horrible fucking lie upon lies. They're just reinforcing the old lie. It's so terrible. I do not recommend it. It's so bad. Uh, all he does in the whole movie is sign documents, give command orders for shooting off cannons and have really, really despicable depictions of sexual intercourse. Like the worst display of what sex is uh, understood to have been in his day is like, oh, it's uh, it's abusive. It's actually it's abusive to see people depict sex in such a callous way uh, i loathed loathed the film um but i want to see what they're trying to do and man they just turned him into a child they rendered him into a child they again made him look short which is not true he wasn't even remotely short they infantilized him to the utmost they turned him into a whiny bitch under the thumb of his cheating wife it was atrocious no emperor in history should ever be depicted in such a foul way. Uh, whatever their beef against Napoleon is, it's only refreshed and reinforced by what just went out in the theaters. You would think they would at least walk back some of the lies. No, they're just they're doubling down. They're totally doubling down on the lies. But his breastplate is still revealing some fascinating truths. All right. Caught the tail end of that, but... Yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep us going, but you got, you got my wheels turning and I just can't, we can't turn every wheel. I can't turn every wheel. <laughs> we'll run out of time. I know. So back in uh, the TVA, we see Renslayer walk into time theater 38 and it's bore fruit for us to examine what the 38 gematria might mean. So I pulled out 38 in the handy dandy gematria book and we got Lamed, or we got a Chet Lamed, right? So it's like HL or hell. Not hell as in the idea of the Christian hell, but yet there may be some relation. It's interesting. This is a word that is referenced meaning uh, a place of basically meant some, it's kind of mysterious, but I understood it to mean polluted or desecrated or defiled but in the act of becoming purified or not yet holy, but implying that it will become holy. So it's a very good representation of the purgatory purification idea, or even hell as a place of purification or how the sun can cause things to become pure 
sunlight can heal Helios, etc. <clears throat> Renslayer asked, asks uh, B15 when she walks in, did you think you could escape punishment? And so this 38, I think, could, um, aside from the fact that she's in a kind of purgatory here, this other word that we're, we have is uh, Z-K-O-Y, Zion, uh, Kaf, <laughs> oh, Aleph, Yad, yeah. And that meant innocent or righteous or deserving. So it's very interesting that there's dual meanings in, laid up in 38 of innocence and righteousness and purification or desecration, but becoming holy. So, so both of these things are right here in this scene where they're in time theater 38. So the, so the Hebrew gematria continues to crush. And then I, I thought we really should finally talk about the damn sashes <laughs> that the TVA wear, specifically the Rensselaer wears. Here's all these South American presidents uh, wearing their sashes. The sash is a symbol of the priesthood. It's a symbol of the military. It's a symbol of government. Why would all three of those things wear the same symbol unless they were the same thing? Not to mention that the sash that the sash, the snake that Ophiuchus holds, that constellation can be considered a sash as well. Meaning that the TVA could be an intermediary in a sense between the world and, the, and God. That is, they're above the sacred, they're maintaining the sacred timeline, which is the ecliptic. The one of the examples of the sash, the Ophiuchus constellation holding a sash is in its characterization as Odysseus, going back to him, where he receives protection from uh, Leucothea, that's her name, the god, meaning basically the white goddess, Leuco is white, where she gives him the sash and he has to use it to uh, save himself from being dashed upon the rocks when he's out at sea swimming for three days, trying to not be murdered by Poseidon. So on the subject of sashes, aside from the government military thing, there are also a, <laughs> pirates wore sashes. Sashes can be worn besides across the body. They can be uh, around the waist or on the head or even concealed under robes. There's a lot going on with the symbolism of sashes. Uh, the monarchs wear it. Yes, that's true. Thank you, Jenny G. Beautiful you wife. Know, this image right here was on a, a little side weave that uh, Kyle and I had a while ago. Uh, this high priest of the ephod here, he's got his palm on the granite. He's got his palm on that table, much like the, uh, the devil card. The palm of the god on tour has his hand on that stone in the center. But the other hand is like igniting this incense burner. And it's almost like, I don't know if that's what's going on, but it's almost telling us that there's some sort of electrical charge off of the altar that is going through the priest in igniting the incense. And then Kyle and I were, uh, we had this weave about what if the incense was some like real subtle alloy woven, worked into the, into the, the frankincense, let's say, but there's an alloy and the alloy knows its location, where it's from. like. Um, Tanzanite has a, a home location where it belongs. And what if the smoke always flows in the tent to the corner that leads it back home? Because the tent is a controlled environment where there's no wind. 
and the Tanzanite would always go to the corner of the tent that is closest to Tanzania. And so that was like this thought experiment that we were just reading way too much into this image of him igniting the frankincense and then picking it with our imagination. That was just a fun side weave. I thought I'd share. Well, that's interesting. There are, you know, we don't think about that very often that there are certain stones that only exist in one place. They only come from one spot of the world. Freak, as Topher likes to say, frequency is location. There's something to that. So what does it mean that this guy brings gems from all kinds of different places and puts them on his chest? Is he like attempting to be the master of frequencies of all locations right? or many those, locations? Yeah. And those, those gems, it's 12, it's a three by four grid. Uh, I think that it's keeping track of lunar standstill cycles and since the 20-year curse of Tenskwatawa, we are on number 12. This is the 12th lunar standstill cycle since that curse was put in place. Uh, so if they're keeping track, because one of the presidents was killed, and then a guy named Ruby killed the guy who killed the president, well, one of those stones is a ruby stone. So they're keeping track of these presidential year curses with the lunar standstills on the breastplate of the ephod. And the word breastplate has the word rest in it. It also has the word breast plate as in eat from the breast, consume from the breast. Is there a special something that should be in that breast milk that makes you an initiate, that makes you a conduit, a channeler, somebody who can be the palm of the God on tour and spark off a rebelist, a rebel flame down here? I'm just saying, I'm going to get another picture real quick, Chance. Uh, I hope I don't blip out. BRB. <laughs> blip out. If you do, I'm not waiting for five years. <laughs> Marvel reference. So you shoot that over. He's blipping out. I thought, well, why not? I'll just go forward. And she starts asking. So Renslayer starts asking her AI Miss Minutes for secret files, everything from the beginning of time as she's now passing by Time Theater 39. And I couldn't help myself. I had to point out that Lamed Tav, I think, or Tet. Uh, one of the T's, I'm not perfect at Hebrew, but it's LT in transliteration, is 39. So that means veil or cover or secret. And she's asking for the secret files while she's standing next to the number that can represent that exact meaning. There's something there. So there, wow. There. Yeah. So we went from 38 to 39. Good catch, bro. I did not see that. that they're sequencing. Well, okay. So if 38 was hell. And uh, B-15 is in, she is the devil card. She's in that prison. While she was in that prison, by the way, she had a line. One of her lines is something like, uh, she said, something, something, something it was fake in case you forgot. The end of her sentence was, it was fake in case you forgot. And I was like, wow, did she just in Twilight speak say it was fake and gay faggot? That's what I heard. That's what I, I, I had that exact thought. They totally said it was fake and gay faggot. Like they totally like seeded that in the in her. Uh, they seeded hate speech in the the person who is the the devil card towards another person who's South American. Like I don't know. There's there's some weird uh, race stuff. The devil card always brings up weird race stuff. That's what I'm picking up on uh, in a major way. Okay, but hold on. So that was 38. Now we're on 39. Well, the 37 degree parallel goes right through the Hades in Turkey, that Hades temple. 
and it's veiled, it's hidden. 37 is the Mason Dixon line. Um, so we have a hell and we have a veiled, a covered. Uh, if we allow the rule of Kalel to give or take one degree, then we're definitely looking at a Hades reference with the parallels. But then I just want to point out that look right next to Miss Minutes in the corner under your letter LT. Can you see what's in the in the hallway? Is that a camera? That's the fucking camera. That's the state, the all seeing eye. And then uh, Rinslayer gives her some orders and she just whoop de doop and disappears into space. Well, they're telling you that, you know, the Panopticon is in full control. The veiled reference is right there in your face. The all knowing. Yeah. Beautiful. Can you bring up those, uh, the graphics I sent you? They're kind of, uh, I'll, I'll rip through this very quickly, but I think I've, I've pinpointed Rinslayer. I think she's, she is two cards at the same time, but this one is, uh, I'm almost, I think I have to move some of my cards in my, uh, on my, uh, Enneagram pro, uh, project, uh, because I like what I'm, what I'm learning about this, uh, the universe card. So her name is, uh, what's her real name her first name ravona is that it ravona is an anagram for universe ravona's universe she is the universe card in this card has this sash on it in the rider weight deck it's uh the world card and it's called the robed one and it has a sash it's draped in a number three but in this deck, it's different. Um, I think this is our Ren Slayer. I think this is her because her name, her first name, Ravona, is an anagram for uh, universe. There it is, Ravona. O-N-N-A-V-A-R-S. Onaverse. And I think... Wow. Yeah, buddy. I think originally, like her original early uh, depictions of her early in the plot, I think she's kind of playing the Hierophant card because she's in the judgment seat. You know, she's like up on the uh, uh, giving justice, which is the justice card. Look here. The image of her from the comics is the same head shape and posture as the world card. Look there to there. Nice. Nice. See what I'm saying? Yeah, that's probably got a name, like a pose, a name for that pose. So, yeah, I just thought I would kind of bring the sash in together uh, because also you see the little baby on the Hierophant card. This oftentimes, uh, that's Skandamata. It's from Hindu mythology, but you could think of this as like, a you know, the baby would need to be uh, bound, like a, a Mobius baby car- uh, carrier. Uh, would hold that baby to the chest of the Hierophant. So the it's sack, a homunculus, actually. It's like a homunculus, yes. Well, and it's it, like what, what Jung says about the homunculus being the inner Christ and how the like the Taoist tradition has practices where you're supposed to transmute things inside of you and like create a homunculus type being or a second a new body for yourself inside your body that's like a light body. Yes, yes. And science tells us that we do that naturally. Like if you look into a homunculus, it kind of implies that we that we naturally do what Jung is instructing us to do. Um, 
There is a homunculus constellation. It is in Carina, not far away from the other composite aspects of this universe card. So this universe card, in my read, it is the Indus constellation. Within its reach, it can just reach out and grab the telescopium or the microscopium constellation, uh, both within reach of Indus. I think Indus is Spinoza. Spinoza died because he was a lens grinder. Uh, He was grinding lenses for both microscopes and telescopes. So secretly behind the scenes on a huge big weave that we won't go into, this is also Spinoza. But uh, the uh, microscopium is abbreviated MIC, Military Industrial Complex. And so you can see this character in the universe. Card. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Marvel Cinematic Universe. MCU, baby. Yes. So that that this is this dialed in um, funnel at the eyeball at the peak of the universe card. That is the microscopium constellation. That is the military industrial complex. That's the panopticon of control. All these things. This is their symbol. And it's so fascinating that just a second ago, there was that camera up in the corner, that all-seeing lens. And now I'm going to say a name that may not make any sense to anybody, but Adam Lansdale. Lansdale. Adam Lansdale is hailing to Spinoza. And I'm just going to leave that alone. I'm going to, I'm going to be obtuse AF with Lansdale. Uh, over, so yeah. my, over my head. Yeah, some people will get it, some won't. But yeah, he's uh, he's hailing to Spinoza with his name. Uh, he's a military industrial cat. All right. So we see that the uh, going back to the plot, the characters are caught and are cooking and eating one of those void turkey peacocks, which maybe is symbolic of them about to be tr- transcending the the cycle they're caught in or like the rebirth element that the peacock indicates could be. And then you see Sylvie and Loki having their, they get a, they get some alone time <laughs> and Mobius is said to be not so bad or so good, which is why Loki likes him. Major theme of the show. There, everyone, nobody who's good is really good all the way good. And nobody who's bad is really only bad. Then there's this cutesy moment where he pretends to be cold, even though he's an insane ice giant or ice god and immune to cold, established in previous Marvel works that he's not affected by cold. So it's so he's like he's he's doing his tricks, trick or mischief, but like, you know, to try to get close to the girl who is him. Dude, chance, you brilliant man. Okay. Wow. That is so brilliant that you picked up on that, that it was uh, apophatically deduced from the scene that like you had to, you had to cut away the falsehood to see that it was all just a, a ploy. That is brilliant chance. Okay. If I'm right that the, when they were in the bunker, that that was the symposium scene where they all are, talking about love and then and then outside of the window was that strange structure on the horizon uh that had the the monster on the on the skyline i think that's where they are now they're out on they're outside of the symposium down out that window down the whatever down the hill in that structure away from where they were meeting in the first place 
I think you could map this out in Athens. I think I could literally go to a map of Athens and point this out from a sky view of where they are right now, because this, if I'm right, and that was the symposium, and this is a a later uh, dialogue, we are looking at the Phaedrus right now. And this is Socrates um, seducing, but I mean that in the biblical uh, platonic (laughs) context, this is uh, Socrates seducing uh, uh, Phaedrus and making a vow, an oath, uh, learning and mastering rhetoric right now. And they do so under these two sacred trees. And they make a vow to the spirit of the presence of that location. In the spirit of that location, there are mysteries between mysteries upon mysteries in what I'm saying here. But this is the christening of academia. This is the beginning of academia. This is the beginning of the gymnosophists. This becomes the gymnasium that later becomes academia. And the trees that they make the sacred vow under are are the original OG two trees in the Garden of Eden. Well, Uh, isn't the Phaedrus also, doesn't it have a lot to do with the metempsychosis, the reincarnation? You got it, man. Yes. They, this, if I'm right, again, there are more ingredients than I could go on for two more hours to try to list here to, to support my theory, because I could. I literally could. I'm trying not to. It's hard not to. It's, it's pulling me. It wants me to, to confirm my suspicion. But him seducing uh, Sylvie in exactly the way you described is a perfect parallel for what Socrates does to Phaedrus in that, in that sacred location. And so this moment here, this bonding that they do is literally a rechristening, a reenacting of the secrets that are I feel like Socrates. He's like, I'm sick of all these speeches. Let's go give each other speeches. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, buddy. And the fact that you just uh, discerned his manipulation of, of Sylvie this way, that he's an ice giant. He doesn't really need this blanket. And she's like, wait, this is like a bed sheet. Is this really making you warm? And he's like, I don't know. It's a blanket. Oh, no, no. She says, is it a tablecloth? And I don't know. But for some reason, when I hear tablecloth, I th- placenta bells start ringing. Totally. Totally, buddy. Totally. <laughs> this is fabulous. This is so fabulous. And so they are. They're like, um, this is kind of a, uh, ca- a capture of the placenta. You know, this is a, a, a convening reconvening of the sacred self in such a beautifully Jungian way. And there's something weird about this, that they're trying to put this in a romantic context and it doesn't really work because they're really, it's masturbatorial uh, ultimately. Um, And that just keeps getting me that it's not really romantic and it's actually kind of incestuous in from that Jungian view. I can't really, I can't get that incestuous sense out of it. Um, but that's what the lover's card is. The lover's card is the twins also, you know, so there's something that's just kind of one of those hard to swallow lessons of the, of the Zodiac is that it really is about yourself, but you can go get married still. You can also go get married. (laughs) That's another layer to it. Well, the idea, the metempsychosis that, Based on your behavior in a current life, it's like where you're going to land in the next life, right? So this in this scene, he Loki says, 
I betrayed my father, my brother, my home, and I know why I did it. And that's not who I am anymore. So this is the moment of rectifying his sins. He's healed his trauma by understanding how it affected his behavior. So now he can escape, escape purgatory. There's also a thing here where I think that it's like the last rites or the sacrament of extreme unction (laughs) where the person knows they're about to die so that they go to the priest so that they can give their final confession and have the Catholics have such wild beliefs. But, you know, they literally think that you got to have a priest come to you right before you die and make sure that every last sin that you ever did right up to the last minute can't miss any of them <laughs> gets blotted out by the last, the last rites or the extreme unction. But there is something interesting about that. Ex- the extreme unction is when the person is going to die of like some kind of imminent dis- uh, death from illness or something. So it's not necessarily about external factors. Like you're about to get executed. You can't get the extreme unction. There's all kinds of rules. It's very litigious, but there is an effect that occurs where the sick person has like peace brought to their soul or their conscience is less troubled because they've given their self ease by their confession or feeling forgiven or whatever. And there are cases, a lot of cases where someone who's terminal will have a remission after, and they will all of a sudden get better after they've had their extreme unction. And in this case, Loki gives his final confession, you know, before facing his imminent demise. But in a way it like he, he, his soul is less troubled and he becomes more heroic and he's actually able to survive it. You know, uh, I'm uh, starting to think about how the catharsis, you know, the, that clearly what the Catholics were monopolizing on, you know, you come and you tell us what you did wrong and then we give you a sense of, of uh, remedy and you can walk out and pat yourself on the back after you confess. And that's, so they literally have the cath, the cath is stamped onto the feeling, you know? So it's like their name is attached to that absolution. But uh, I also, let's, let's not miss the cathar because the very last scene is going to circle back to the cathars and we're going to get into the cathars, uh, I think on the next episode. So, very apropos that catharsis is like foreshadowing um, what I think is about to be uh, uh, La Reine Le Chateau uh, is I think where we're going to go at the, at the very last scene. Well, that's a good weave. Yeah, buddy. Uh, <laughs> then she kind of does back to that vision or prophecy thing. She says there might be a timeline for you to rule. <laughs> when this is all over, <laughs> I think that's another moment of prophecy. That's foreshadowing. You know, he's got to take over for Kronos because he's the son. This, that's how the wheel works. And there's also this. I don't understand. I can't find receipts on this other than in that, that Hebrew Gematria book that PK hooked me up with. But in that book, there's, Something I came across in the previous episode when we were looking at numbers pertaining to that, where there's an idea that the I'm going to just read from the quote, 
over the book. The strange fruit of the nuptials between Ish, which is Eve, as man fire, and Ad- Adama, which is earth and Adam, is Yin. I couldn't find anything Yod, like Yod and Nun. Maybe there's another letter in there. I could do more searching. But this Yin, according to this Thelema book, is a sort of tornado in which anything can happen. So the fruit of the nuptials between Adam and Eve is a sort of tornado in which anything can happen. So they're having like, you know, they're swearing to each other. Like after this moment, they say to each other, after this is all over, we can figure it out together. So they're sort of vowing to be together. This is like a marriage of sorts, the alchemical marriage, you could say, because following the scene, they have to now face the dweller <laughs> or the guardian on the threshold. So I think the yin or the tornado is the, is a in a way. And in the next scene, we see the Typhon figure on the horizon and then you get this sword given from the kid Loki to adult Loki. You mentioned it being like a sword of Perseus. Is that right? That was your thought on it? Yeah. And yeah. And I got to mention, it's a very, uh, it's a piss poor sword. It's sad. It's tiny. It's little. <laughs> it's not very masculine. <laughs> it's soft. It's gold. Gold is a terrible alloy to be swinging around in self-defense with. You know, it's the worst alloy. Well, the golden sword is Chrysor, which is Christ. And that's also Ophiuchus. Where does Chrysor come from? Springs from the head of Medusa, along with Pegasus. And guess guess what else? Scorpio is a multi-headed serpent. And springing from the top... Out of the top of Scorpio is Ophiuchus. I think Ophiuchus is Chrysor. I tried to make a case for that on the David Matheson episode. I'm personally convinced it's also Belafron. Belafron is Chrysor. Chrysor doesn't have a lot of mythology attached to it, but one of it's just an alternate name for Perseus. It's Perseus. It's Belafron. It's they're all the same guy. Chrysor is the same guy. And isn't a well, uh, there's one of the words for turning lead into gold is like Chrysor something, something. Chrysor transformation or something where it, turning lead into gold, I think, has a Chrysor in its name as well. That makes sense because that word Chrysor relates to gold. The And Jenny says, looks a lot like the sword the Sphinx holds on the wheel card. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yes. And uh, one thing about that wheel card, man, there's so much. Uh, It's a it's a specific kind of golden color. I think it's um, that electron or electrum, the the purified gold that's so golden that it's actually green in its original derivative. But it's also a lemon wedge or a lime wedge uh, as well. so yeah, the the we the fortune card is a type of gold, but some people might say, ah, that's too yellow. It's not golden enough. But I would say it's actually more gold because it's green, because of that electrum has a green hued gold in its pure form. So yeah, total wheel of fortune card. Well, another thing I want to put on the mix is that oh, how do you spell Chrysor? C H R Y S A O R S A O R Chrysor. Yeah. The 
sword could be a weapon called Lavetian, which is one crafted by Loki in the Poetic Edda. In this weapon, he he uses this weapon to slay the rooster Vith, Vithofnir on top of Mimamidir, the Mimamidir tree, which is accepted by a lot of scholars just be an alternate name for the world tree, Yggdrasil. So there's a rooster at the top of the world tree that he, he crafts this weapon to slay it. The word Levetian is literally renderable as a wand of destruction, which is probably just a kenning, a type of poetic naming convention for a sword. And thus it's associated with fire. If it's a wand, wands are associated with fire. I think that that's what the sword is personally, because slaying the rooster at the top of the world tree sounds like pretty much the same thing that he's doing to get to the top. Remember the pineal pineal at the top, the amygdala, the tower at the beginning of this episode there. It's all about getting to the top of the tower. That's what this whole thing is about. And then the next episode is what happens when you get to the top of the tower. It's struck by lightning tower struck with lightning. And that will be, that one's obvious. That will be the theme for next time. And interesting. Yeah. That's a, Really good point too, Dylan, that that name sounds a lot like Leviathan. Basically, it is Leviathan if you just make the T into a TH. It's the same word, the sword, Leviathan, Leviathan, basically the same. And also, I I, I bet there's a, a fit for the Tananiver as well uh, between Shemael and Lilith. Uh, there's a Tananiver sacred uh, implement, some sort of... Uh, uh, apparatus that's going to come that's going to fuse them together at the end and when it does all the universes will collapse uh but i see that in the word as well this sacred tan and ivor of union and who's the guardian of the threshold beyond to get to the world tree the top of the tree that's ophiuchus and ophiuchus can also be abraxas or yao which we talked about with matheson two days ago what is abraxas rooster headed snakes for legs so Rooster, the rooster at the top of the world tree in this Norse myth, I think is the same as the Abraxas deity. And the uh, fact that we're about to see, well, we're about to see Loki with the sword uh, again. I'll save it. But there's this moment where they're saying their goodbyes. Mobius is going to go back to the TVA and he says he's going to burn it to the ground. And he says, thanks for the spark. That's because Loki is the divine spark, Mercury, the gap spark between the poles, Eros, the, div, you know, the, the, the principle of the savior, which is the, the spark of attraction between male and female. Huge theme of the show. That's what saves everything. When Loki and Sylvie realize that they have their attraction power to each other, they're able to prevent the end of the world which is the end of them they prevent their deaths the world's about to end tva shows up they're saved they're here in the at the end of the world the end of time no way out but their attraction to each other which they just reestablished and they had their sacred alchemical marriage gives them the spark to escape from this to to go past it so that's eros the savior spark attraction <laughs> the reason why humanity continues to exist is because mom and dad got it on because they had the spark of attraction they had erotic love for each other that's that's the savior that's the symbolism 
And then there's also kind of a nice moment that Loki's capable of friendship and he, him and Mobius have a hug. He's really changed. This very different character than what we saw season one, episode one, which is part of what makes the show enjoyable is the good character development. And now we have the moment where they really, they're finally facing it. The guardian of the threshold, the dweller on the threshold, it's the, in occultism, especially in Steiner, it's the spectral image, which is supposed to manifest itself when the student of spirit ascends upon the path into the higher worlds of knowledge. So there's this, it's the guardian against ascension. And when you're about to like hit nirvana or understand something, have your epiphany is what Gardner calls it the taco. You're about to have some big <laughs> spiritual epiphany. The taco shows up. <laughs> you got to get past it. <laughs> Which in reverse is Okat, of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> There's something I wanted to bring to bear from the call-in line. Thank you for this. Well, there's a couple of good things. Jenny pointed out. I'll just, why don't I just bring it up? Here we go. Jenny, she's a crusher. She, she catches a lot of stuff that I don't catch. And a lot of things that I probably pass off as my own, she noticed for me. But Eliath's skull... And here's the bear skull. And remember, it's a star in Ursa Major, Eliath is. So that's an awesome catch. Totally that, see that. That is a perfect fit. That is totally a bear skull. Totally. And then I'll bring this down. In that same book PK sent me, it's interesting to note that uh, the integers 1 through 20, if you're adding up 1 through 20, it equals 210. And he asks... Did looking at 20 send you to 210, the sum of 1 through 20? The page, there's a, a passage that he shared in the call-in line from the book that I get this Gematria stuff from, where it says, the correspondence is between the Tower, Babel, and Babylon. It is necessary to note that the number of Nephilim is 210. The Tower of Babel is Ophiuchus as well. It's the Tower to the Heavens, right? It's, it doesn't quite reach the heavens. All of the above. So 210 is also the number of the night of Pan or the veil of the abyss. The night of Pan is what the Thelemites call the experience of the dweller on the threshold or the guardian of the threshold. It's very interesting. The night of Pan or the veil of the abyss. Remember the veil, man behind the curtain. It's also the number of reversal through its equation with BQ, BVQ, a bottle. Uh, from the Egyptian baka 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 baka, meaning upside down or topsy turvy. Remember the wheel. There's the upside down right at the beginning of the episode. Uh, two ten is the number of ADHR, the first atom. Two ten is the number of three words denoting the other side of the tree. That's the back or the hind quarter, the hidden passages or tunnels of set. It's definitely where they're at right here. Gosh, there's so much in this. <laughs> um. And finally, though, I'll just, just I'm skipping ahead a bit, but you can join our call in line if you want to see this whole passage. The number 210 also NBTNPT, Nebet and Pet, the queen of heaven and thus the void itself. Interesting. These Thelemites, they're, they're loco, but I, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. So the, in the Solabuska deck, the tower card was uh, card number 20. Card XX in the. Oh, yeah. This, this art is the dweller on the threshold, by the way. It's a painting of it. Holy There's the. 
So yeah, the old, the, one of the earliest tower cards was actually card number 20 instead of 16, which is pretty interesting. But then even when you, you keep saying 210, well, 210 is XX, 10 twice. <laughs> so two tens, what, I, what I'm getting at is that the 20, which is XX, it, that leads you to a, a 2010 is still kind of echoing the X and the X again. Uh, in a fascinating way. But yeah, there is a, a strong correspondence to, and then the double X is not just the Aeon and the judgment card. It's also the fascies, uh, the relegare of the fascies that remind you of uh, that. They uh, have double standards. Bam. And okay. So they're facing the garden of the threshold. It's coming at them. Loki's like, we need a distraction. So he runs out and then he lights the sword on fire. So we're sure that it's Archangel Michael now, symbol symbolically. Archangel Michael is a psychopomp. Archangel Michael is an Ophiuchus figure. If you remember when we were talking with Matheson, he showed us how the scales in the hand of Archangel Michael are the scales of Libra that you always see him holding. So if someone's holding the scales of Libra, it would have to be Ophiuchus who's standing above it, over it, right? Holding it out. So this is um, the moment where we can be sure. And also, this is the moment where, you know, he's finally breaking out of the loop, that Odyssean loop of being trapped in the fall period. This is his last run through the scales moment. This is him as the psychopomp as well, because He's guide. He's the guide to souls in the sense that, well, all the Loki figures are psychopomps, right. especially the old Loki does a big psychopomp moment where he, uh, you know, sort of self-sacrifices as well. He does a savior moment, self-sacrifices for them to move on. Um, and here's her holding up her coughs. I mean, her palms again. <laughs> so the symbolism of the fortune card and the hermit card are both strong in this episode. The hands are out, but also you see the hands with the palms out repeatedly. Uh, and then remember that that thing, the timekeepers are building a utopia at the end of time. Here it is. The old Loki to save the two younger Lokis. He creates a giant illusory Asgard. Yeah. Utopia means no place. So it's a big city at the end of time. <laughs> It's a utopia. It's not, it's, it doesn't exist. And in my opinion, it, this moment is a lot like when speaking of Ophiuchus moments and Ophiuchus in the sky clock, this is where Zeus defeats Typhon by dropping a mountain on him because Asgard is shown in the Marvel films, at least as like a sacred a circle city, wheel city with the, the central palace shaped like a mountain. And he drops this in and that's what causes Eliath to be defeated. So, you know, he it, metaphorically speaking, he drops this mountain on Typhon. And that's oh. that's the moment we're getting here. OK. Oh, cool. OK. Uh, OK. 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 I'm getting my bearings. I love this. Yes. This the the defeat of Typhon is totally in play, right? Um, maybe, uh, oh, I did not expect to do this, but this is f f perfect. 
So when Typhon is storming across the land, uh, all the gods of Greece, they have to go to uh, Egypt where Pan, uh, who's an agricultural deity, gives them this clever idea to wear these costumes, to dress up as animals. All of the animals are all actually hypersigil metaphors that can unpack the nature of those gods still today. Pan is the one who gives them the idea to hide in disguise so that Typhon can actually miss them on the first pass, turn his back and walk away. And that's when Zeus pops up and strikes him in the back. Um, so, te- and what's cool is there is a distraction. There's two distractions. Like Loki has to run over here and wave his sword to distract him, right? Well, that's correspondent to the sending out the scapegoat ritual. You have to send one goat into the far wilderness for Azazel. And that draws Azazel into the wilderness away. And then when that so that uh, takes the evil spirit away from the city. And then they sacrifice the two at the same time so that only the goodness is in the city and Azazel has been distracted. But this where he, and then there's another distraction here where he's building up the city for uh, Eliath to, uh, to try to come and chomp on. I think he's kind of playing the role of Pan, this, this, this trickster because of the green too. He's the green man. Right. And with this uh, rising up of this emerald city so that the monster can come and uh, chomp on it. And then uh, and then while the monster's back is turned, Zeus is supposed to uh, join force. No, he just does it alone. Zeus takes off his mask, which was a ram's mask and attacks Typhon from the back. So, yeah, buddy, the whole the dynamic of Typhon is playing out. I would say that old Loki here is playing the role of Pan, though, uh, as the trickster, the one who had the idea to deceive Typhon. And then Zeus comes out of uh, a kind of underhanded means and tries to strike. And Zeus actually loses that battle in the story. Temporarily. And Typhon takes all his tendons out of his muscles. He takes his 10 bands and heads north. Right. So I got this comment, though. Another great point. The skyline seems Aurora Borealis-esque. That's the high sea. There it the is. Neon green high sea. The- drinking the Kool-Aid. They're drinking, <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid, which is, uh, it's, a, it's an illusion. It's a deceit. The city, the 15-man city, is for those who want to drink the Kool-Aid, who want to come in and vibe. In the in the tomfoolery of it, I love the this. utopia at the end of time is the Kool Aid, right? Because they believe in the utopia at the end of time. That's what keeps them working at the, okay. <laughs> the TVA, uh, and even uh, the Hyperboreans. You know, the uh, Hyperborea was used as a lure to draw the folk out of the out of the German people and lead them into all kinds of. Uh, whatever we know, we know what that was used to lure people into. Uh, I want to share some of uh, what this revealed to me in this moment about this Loki and why he's like, he's like the hermit because he's the old man, but he's dressed up in the old costume, which the old costume corresponds with the Thoth Dex fool card. And so what I think I'm, what I think I'm seeing here is the consummation between the Rider Weight Fool card, which is like the P, the PG of the tarot deck, versus the grown up tarot deck, which is the Thoth deck tarot. Um, and I think the uh, the Rider Weight Fool card is uh, it's more 
of a um, Orion in the rise in the springtime when the greenery is lush uh, as we're climbing the mountain of the Zodiac going up to the solstice of the summer. I think that is the old Rider Waite Fool card, the old one. And the, uh, the this Foth deck Fool card is a actual fall uh, uh, because he's Bowotes. He's in the fall time of year. And what's interesting is the old Rider Waite Fool card had two dogs by his heels. The Canis Major and the Canis Minor are right next to Orion. Well, isn't it fascinating that there's an echo, a perfect nine-month differential echo in the fall time of year where Canis Venetisi has two dogs by, his, by the side of Buotes. And so Orion and Buotes are a, uh, a yin and a yang of each other. And this character in this moment is I think he's embodying the old writer weight, the old ways, the PG, um, the naivete for the for the younger, the newbies. Um, I think he's embodying that because of the build up. He's uh, uh, he's embodying that old writer weight uh, aspect, but he's dressed up. His costume has all of the uh, the ambiance of the Thoth deck writer weight. So I see both of the fool cards fused into this character here, that he is both the Rider Waite and the Thoth deck fool card, almost like uh, I was talking about in the symposium, how the elder is pursuing the younger. And in the end of the story, it is the younger pursuing the elder. And so this is irony at its finest. And I think that these artists have turned irony into an art craft that they can communicate so much between the lines, like what you did when you read uh, how Loki was actually using an inappropriate blanket to try to soothe her. And she's like, this isn't fucking warm. And he's like, oh yeah, it's a blanket. What do you want? But I think there's irony in there. And you were able to extract from the irony so much more between the lines information. Uh, So yeah, I'm just going to kind of drop it on that. But I think that's what these artisans are really doing. They're using irony to seed a bunch of information that you have to read from between the lines to get the real nuggets of what is not said. There's yeah. Nuggets. (laughs) It's full of nuggets. Yeah, man, we're almost there guys. So in this final scene, the climactic moment, look at all the grasping and all the palms. (laughs) It's just tons of grasping and palms. And then old man Loki gets taken out. Womp womp. That's the uh, the head coming down from above thing that we were talking about earlier, way way earlier, hours ago. But let's not forget that he is able to hide in random inanimate objects, and as he gets eaten, his helmet falls on the ground. An inanimate object falls to the ground. And he can hide in those for millennia. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. He, may, he may still be alive. I like to believe. I believe. Uh, the, cha- the enchantment's successful. Everything goes green. It's the high C. <laughs> there it is. Um, which allows the eye of the needle, the eye of the storm, to open up. That's it. We did it. Yeah, you know, so we we found all the correlations we could to the wheel, to and to the hermit, the retreating into oneself and coming through purgatory, 
and reaching the top of the tower. So much going on there. But really, it's this episode is where we start to see the uh, the largest theme of the show, which is the idea of ascending to godhood by making all parts of yourself perfect. And season two, when we get there, we really start to understand that because parts of self becomes your past, reliving past moments. But that's getting ahead of ourself. We're there. <laughs> it's been it's been a wild ride. I'm impressed that we got there in the in the four hour window. Amazing job, man. Lots, lots to think about this time around. Appreciate everybody who's been on the ride with us the whole time. Appreciate that kind super chat from Rachel. Thank you for your Herculean support. Appreciate that very much. You know, there's, there's, there's going to be more. We're going to have fun and we'll see you guys soon. I think we're good. You got any closing thoughts, Gabe? Uh, let me think. Um, well, uh, the, this castle that they're going, that they're, that they've discovered this portal that they've opened up. Um, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, I think, hmm, hold on, let me think. I want to say, well, I want to say that they're going to leave us at, I think we're at the foot of the Jordan river. I think we're at the foot of the Eurydnus river because all those, all those palms, throughout this episode, I think we could say that they culminate into the, um, the palm tree is within the phylum of the Phoenix, uh, category. And so the Phoenix constellation, uh, I think, um, is the conflagration where, uh, we've just kind of reached a very uh, significant location at the foot of the Eurydnus river and so that's where I think there uh, we are in the zodiac in the sky in the heavens. I think we're at the phoenix, uh, and they're about to move into the uh, Uranus. They're about to move forward uh, because then next is the Fornax constellation. The phoenix and the Fornax uh, are going to be the next chapter uh, that they're moving into. Uh, which is just more of the wheel of fortune, more revelation of what the wheel of fortune and the God machine in the sky is all about. So, yeah, we're about to get the uh, the big diatribe of it was my plan all along. If you and your damn kids and your damn dog hadn't foiled my plot. I think you're right about that. The we, you know, they finally broke the pattern of free fall and thus they would be hitting that Phoenix and then a radness area as they're, they're going to get access to the deep secrets. They're going to finally fully understand things as Pisces. And then they're going to confront the most high, the, t the top G, the Aries. Right. right. Oh, I guess this is why this is why I'm getting that feel is because of the smoke, because we, there was so much smoke in this episode. And so the fall is represented by the air elements. And so the smoke has cleared now. And because the smoke is cleared, we're out of the wind elements. We're out of the swords. We're out of the fall time of year. And now we're really going to hit the, the, the earth is going to, the, the substance is going to really come through uh, where the rubber meets the road. Things are going to materialize like uh, consistently. And so we're moving into a castle, which is a, which is a stone earth element. And the winter time is signified by 
diamonds or earth elements. So we're going from the smoke into the earth of this castle. So we're literally going out of the fall and into the winter. And that's the terminus point. So we're literally walking across the solstice with the closure of this episode. That's my final statement. And I'm dropping the mic and walking away. (laughs) (laughs) Tons of mic drops, drops this time. Awesome. Don't forget, you can support Gabe too. Cash app is how the best way to do it. Slick Dissident on Cash App. Also links in all the show notes for that. <laughs> Machine says there's nobody else that can do what these guys do here. Thanks, man. I do think that we have a, a unique perspective, skill set, interests. I don't know if there's anyone else out there that would want to do what we're doing right now. Because <laughs> it, like, it takes a long time for me to put this together and think about this. We invest a lot into this. And so appreciate that you guys are enjoying it. And anything you guys want to reciprocate to either Gabe or myself, it's very helpful because it is, it is work, not just the work to go into this episode, but the work of a lifetime to understand or see things that we see, but also couldn't do it without you. Y'all, y'all bring a lot to the table that seriously, that Aurora, Aurora Borealis weave with the high C made my night because I was scratching my head on that one. Why are we seeing the high C? What's this here for? And I, I can trust that when there's a mystery, I don't quite grasp as long as I can sort of poke the holes out around the outline for you guys, you will, one of you or a few of you will knock it out of the park. So love you all. Thanks for, thanks for making this my job. I love my life. I love my, my friends. You guys are the best. So well said. Yes. I want to honor the chat as well. Uh, you know, uh, I did it this week and I'm going to do it again before the next one. I go back and I watch the episodes and then I actually pay attention to the chat. So a lot of times I'm actually, you know, getting so many wonderful nuggets from the chat. So big ups to everybody out there. And yeah, high C was a humdinger. That was a humdinger. All right. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Watch out for mutant Santa. Be good out there.